Welcome to Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan, a podcast about the art and hobby of miniature painting. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. Today we're going to start off with some big news. Listening to Paint and Dry with Mike and Dan is now available on YouTube and on Amazon. So go find us. Right, man. It's very exciting. You know, many painters out there listen to YouTube videos while they paint or audiobooks. Now you can access our podcast the same way. We'll have appropriate links in the show notes. So it's kind of awesome. We also have some other very exciting news. What, what, what? Another listener email. Holy crap. That like makes, what, three? All right, we're moving up. So what did they say? All right, well, we had an email from Aaron. It says, hey, guys, enjoying the podcast and especially loving the exploration of new genres, which is something that not many other miniature hobby channels and videos are doing, so well done. I especially enjoyed the steampunk episode and your explanation of all the different punks. I thought I would mention for you and your listeners that there are fantastic garage companies. There's a fantastic garage company called Industria Mechanica. You can find them on industrialmechanica.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. They do a variety of unique, one-of-a-kind models, ships, and miniatures. One of my particular favorites is their Ian McQueen series, which is modeled after scrap punk artist Ian McHugh. Oops, sorry, Ian McHugh's work. I have no affiliation with Industrial Mechanica, but have ordered and built a number of their models and can vouch for the quality as top-notch and the designs are ingeniously inventive. A great palette cleanser for Warhammer and fantasy and other typical genres. Check them out. Keep up the good work. It makes for great listening. All the best, Aaron. So, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time out to email us. Really appreciate it. That is a great tip. I had a chance to check out the industrialmechanica.com site earlier today. Dude, that is a rabbit hole of awesomeness. So much fun to look at. And you know, when he, when he was talking about uh, additional uh, kind of uh, genres out there or subcategories of uh, steampunk, you know, we're going to talk later on about the World of Darkness Vampire Masquerade, and that's described as gothic punk. So there's mm-hmm. another punk, and there's also the Clint Eastwood series, the Lucky Punk, if you're feeling it. Oh, my goodness. There went two of our three listeners, Dan. Thanks, man. I, I, I tried, man. I tried. So, you know, with that being said, man, uh, we're back on the genre focus today. So today we decided to be very timely with our topic, and it's going to be on Halloween. Mike, why don't you get us started with some background on the spookiest and bestest holidays? It's one of my favorites too, Dan. Actually, I have a son. My son is born on October 30th, which is exciting. We always joke that he was born the day before Halloween so he could get a costume picked out. Um, And he also loves Halloween as well. So to start off with some background, according to the History Channel, which actually is a documentary I just recently watched, and they have a bunch of great stuff on their website, Halloween finds its origin in the Celtic holiday of uh, Salham. Now, it's, it looks like, if you read it, it sounds like it's Sam Hain, but it's actually Sal Ham. People would burn candles and dress in costumes to scare away ghouls and evil spirits. The Celtic New Year is on November 1st, and on that day, the, the between October 31st and November 1st, that, they believe, was the time between the living and the dead was the thinnest and easier for ghosts and spirits to kind of come back. And so they believe that in order to chase them away... They would dress in costumes, they would burn candles, etc. But the interesting thing of that is they also believe that that was the time that you could get prophecies and such because druids and clerics were able to kind of see in the future. And since times during the, the, uh, since those times were very hard times, 
they tried and hoped that they would create uh, some form of reassurance for the coming new year. Um, now, coincided, what coincided with that as well is Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as a time to honor all saints. Soon as all, all saints day started to incorporate some of the traditions, the Celtic traditions of, uh, of Samhain. The evening was known as All Hallows Eve and later turned into Halloween. And over time, Halloween evolved into what we know today of trick-or-treating, carving jack-o'-lanterns, festive gatherings, putting on costumes, and eating lots and lots and lots of chocolate and candies, etc. Except, of course, this year because of, you know, that whole COVID crap. The, the worst Halloween ever, right? Although it hasn't happened. Well, I mean, the candy's going to be on sale, so that's all good. That is the bonus side of it. There's, that, there's going to be some awesome candy sales. And I'll, I'll tell you this. I have found in places like, you know, the, some of the big box stores and some other places, little Halloween bits, um, like bones and stuff along those lines that are tiny. And so that's been pretty cool. I've been able to, to stock up on some bones and skulls and stuff. Like, you know, Michael's now has these beads that are skull beads, and those are perfect perfect size for putting skull miniatures on your thing and substantially less expensive than buying them from games workshop or other like resin etc so and they look they're they're more than just passable they can go on i would think they could go on a competition level piece oh sam you know that that's a great uh place to to look you know all the hobby craft stores they're always having stuff for decorations but that's really good for us to just pick up our hobby supplies you know we, no, sometimes we may be going there to pick up brushes anyway but hey you never know a week before a week afterwards they're gonna be throwing everything upon sale and you also have you know you have dollar stores or dollar generals or any of those sometimes you can get some really good terrain pieces in there also absolutely absolutely that's a lot of fun i know that um i bought a wooden coffin like a paintable wooden coffin for from michael's that actually I'm going to cut it in half. It looks, I'm working on a project for uh, a niece's Christmas present and it's going to, that cutting in half, it actually forms a perfect stage. So I'm doing a puppet, the puppeteer from Mindworks game, the original, not the new one. Um, Cause I haven't got the new one yet, but uh, that I'm doing for her for Christmas. Cause she's really into spooky, creepy horror stuff. And so, um, that turned out to be, I was like, holy crap, that looks like a stage if I hold it in my hand like this. And so I'm going to turn that into a stage to put the puppeteer on. But anyways, cool. I, I'm, I, let me get back a little bit to the to the history stuff. So, there were, of course, you know, like all throughout Europe, the Romans at some point conquered um, conquered the territories uh, of the Celtic, many Celtic territories. And over the course of that 400-year rule, um, there were two different festivals that the Romans had that combined a lot of the Samhain traditions. The first was Feriala, which was a, late, a day in late October when Romans traditionally commemorated the passing of the dead. And the second was to honor Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. The symbol of Pomona is the apple, and the incorporation of the celebration into the Samhain uh, probably explains the traditional bobbing for apples practice today. You know, that uh, I would not suggest bobbing for apples in the time of COVID. That's probably got a super spreader event written all over it so oh i was thinking like the apple on the tree and that chick who ate it and turned into a snake and people got kicked out of something i, I don't know so that's what i was thinking the <laughs> apple. i'm not sure if she turned into a snake but i think i know what you're talking about <laughs> and so um 
That, of course, to have all changed from the 9th century, Christian influence had spread throughout the Celtic lands, etc. Um, and that's when, you know, All Souls Day really started to kind of kick in. Um, and the celebrations were very similar to Samhain with big bonfires and parades and dressing up in costumes like the saints, even angels and devil. So, um, and so the celebration was also called All Hallows or All Hollow Mass from the Middle English. You know, same the same type of thing. Um it's a it's an interesting progression to watch because you know there's a lot of that always that conversation how many christian and other religions holidays are all somewhat rooted in the in paganistic type rituals etc christmas and you know even halloween has got no no kidding halloween would have paganistic sides of it you know and so it's become it's interesting, too, because it's kind of done both sides of the coin here in America, where in the past, there was a, in the Celtic days, it was a good thing and a bad thing. It was a good thing because there were, uh, Druids and clerics were able to kind of get prophecies and feels for about how the year was going to go. But it was a bad thing because they were, of course, what is the number one fear besides taxes? Fear of death. And so fear of the dead coming back to get you, the root of every zombie movie ever and zombie story, etc. You know, that they kind of had that duality. And so even here in like the United States, there's a duality of it between one time you open the door one time and you see Spider-Man and the Avengers, and then you open up the next time and you see murder victims and, you know, other scary monsters, etc. And so both sides of the coin are there that people dress up in positive fun things, but also you see scary things. You know, and that's a, it's an interesting dichotomy, you know, I, I will, we'll leave it at that, but you know, it's also, it's all, uh, you know, one of the things too, that I love about Halloween, um, is ghost stories. How do you, how are you on ghost stories, Dan? Do you love ghost stories? Uh, I think I'm beyond the ghost story thing, like telling ghost stories and listening to them. Well, it doesn't have to, it, it doesn't have to be like sitting around a campfire. I'm more talking about like, I, I really enjoy um, I've got about 12 different cities, but uh, like reading the books about like, you know, Haunted Richmond, Haunted, oh, haunted stuff. So those are well, ghost stories okay. too. Now I see what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. You know, and I think we talked about this uh, in one of our just offbeat conversations a while back that, um, um, yes, I used to travel when I was much younger. I, I did do ghost hunting. Uh, that was always a lot of fun. Um, I'm a little older now, and uh, with a little bit of being older and wiser and and more um, attuned or not in tune to things, I try not to dabble in that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, that you know, I've I've been in some pretty whacked out places. Uh, I've seen and experienced um, stuff people would say was my imagination. Um, I've you know. But yes, uh, I've traveled to all the old cities, Charlottesville. I've done New Orleans numerous times. I've spent many, many, many nights in different hotels and different buildings in New Orleans. And that's my favorite city of, of all time. Charlotte, I did too. We did some stuff in uh, Northern Maryland, um, uh, Annapolis, things like that. Um, and it just kind of like, you know, you get older, you have kids, you have uh, little figures to paint. So I don't go out and do all that stuff. Uh, I had, there was a team of us that would, that would go out together for a little bit. Um, and, uh, 
after after a couple things, we decided that it's probably a good idea not to uh, not to dabble in that anymore for any number of reasons, but uh, especially this month. So yeah, no, that's the, 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 the boundary is blurred, man. This is the time when you when that the protection between life and death is the thinnest, right? So can I tell you can I tell you my ghost story, my one real life ghost story? It's quick. Yes, tell me. All right, so. Um, in the eighties, my mother's father, my grandfather lived with us. And when I was away, um, as a, you're going to, it's all nerd all the time here on, on my side. Um, my sophomore year in high school, I went to my first travel debate tournament, um, on the Sunday night at 7 35 PM. I remember looking at the time because it was kind of weird was when we got called on the stage and, uh, because we had actually won the debate tournament. So it was pretty cool, you know, king of the nerds for that that weekend. Anyways, I felt really weird, and I thought it was just kind of a stage thing. I've never been good at, you know, large crowds, etc., um, unless I was debating. Um, and so get home next day. It's kind of that, that late or late that evening. Late, late, late. Um, not that evening, that night. Um, and my house is really quiet. Um, I didn't notice anything else. I noticed anything out of the ordinary, etc. Um, so I went to bed, got up the next morning and it found out that my grandfather had passed away, uh, that, and he had actually was pronounced dead at 7 35 PM the night before. So it was kind of weird. Fast forward about two years after that, I was sitting at home, um, during my senior year in high school, my mom and dad had gone out, my brother was away at college and we still had a dog. Now he, uh, my grandfather, you know, spent all day with this beautiful German shepherd that we had named Babe. My dad was a John Wayne fan. What, what are you going to do? Anyways, and so her and I were sitting in the living room. I was watching TV. Then out of the corner of my eye, I see kind of this blur out in the front, in the kind of the front of our bay window. And I kind of like adjust my eyes and look again. And there is somebody walking in front of our house wearing what clearly looked like my grandfather had this very distinct blue terry cloth zip up polo zip up sweat jacket thing that had these two white stripes on him and he wore it every single day could have been 110 degrees out he was wearing it and so i was kind of like freaked out what freaked me out even worse is that babe our german shepherd actually ran to the window and started doing like kind of her happy dance bark dance she was so excited and i kind of like i got up and i well, I was watching him, he was walking, whatever it was, was walking towards our front door, and I went and opened the door, and of course nothing was there. But the weird thing that happened even after that is that the whole house smelled like Chesterfield cigarettes. Not only that, when my parents came home, my parents were like, have you been smoking Chesterfield cigarettes in the house? Of which, of course, I wasn't, but... You know, it was just one of the, that was, that's my ghost story right there. I don't know what it was, whether it was a ghost, whether it was figuring of my imagination, but the fact that my dog reacted and that my parents still smelled the kind of the cigarette smoke in the house, even though, you know, they had really had the house cleaned after he had passed away. Um, that was kind of our, that's my ghost story. It's <laughs> pretty messed up. <laughs> messed up. <laughs> well, at least he didn't come try to kill me with like a spoon or something. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but that's it. That's my only brush with what might have been the supernatural. Do you have? You do. Do you want to give us a hint or give us one? Or are you good? Uh, let's see. I kind of want to, but I like to share those. You know, when it's all dark out in the woods and and people like 
actually die. That would be more entertaining. Uh, I will say, though, that um, uh, I had a friend who was part of our team. And one of the reasons why we don't, um, don't do this anymore is uh, he went uh, to, I can't remember, West Virginia? He went to West Virginia on the weekend, and I couldn't go. And I'm kind of glad of that. And uh, when he got back, he said that he was kind of like feeling kind of weird. And he's like, you know, something's just not right. And for about two weeks or so, he's like, you know, he's like, man, you know what? He's like, my house just seems kind of funny. And he's like, I think I might have brought something back. And I was like, oh, okay, what, you know, I don't know much about that. Um, but with, <laughs> within the next couple of weeks, he put his house up for sale and left. <laughs> it was like no joke. He sold his place. We didn't go into many discussions about what happened and what he, you know, I, I know where he went. Um, but I was just like, dude, don't, I'm not coming to your place anymore, man. I don't want to be dragging shit to my house. No kidding. Oh yeah. That reminds me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I try not to bring up those kind of things too much. Cause, uh, yeah. I'm trying to put that force field of good and harmony and love and everything around my house. So I don't, don't worry about that stuff anymore. When I was younger and could fight the, the evils of the universe. Yeah. Now I'm kind of old and decrepit. Don't have that much power anymore. <laughs> so one of the things that horror uh, aficionados like to do or horror writers and, you know, movie writers, et cetera, like to do is to prey on people's fears and Halloween time is always a, a great time to do that. Do you have a particular fear like that is out there? I know. I'm not going to tell you what my fears are, but there are some movies that give, give me the creeps a little bit more than others. Um, clowns don't really do it for me because um, I think they're they're I, I understand their place. I mean, some of the costumes of the clowns are kind of creepy, but they don't give me the like willies or anything like that. Um, but there are certain things out there that that bother me and, and I would gravitate more towards those to be entertained, like, uh, you know, when I'm watching movies or trying to read a book or something like that. Right. And so, you, yeah, you know, and clowns for me, like a regular clown doesn't bother me, but ones that are like, like, and even ones that are like made out, like, I don't have a fear of clown from clowns from seeing Pennywise. Cause that's, that's a creepy looking clown clown. That's purposely looking supposed to look creepy. But yeah, like, exactly. but like dirty kind of half-ass looking clowns, those give me kind of like a John Wayne Gacy vibe. And I'm like, yikes, no, no, don't want to deal with that. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you uh, what. You know what? That's funny. Oh, so you said John Wayne Gacy. So um, the first, the first day, so I used to work at Blockbuster Video and the first night I was walking around and my job was just to stroll around, make sure all the video covers were in the right place for those people, you know, who remember what we used to do at video. Maybe we'll have another show on that one. So um, I would make sure that, there's, you know, the video covers were in place um, and help people find movies that they're looking for movies. That, you know, when they ask, like, I'm looking for this movie. Oh, sorry, we're all out right now. Oh, my God, it just came out today. Blah, 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 blah. So, um, so we're walking by this horror section and there were a bunch of teenage girls and they looked at um, this cover and I can't remember the name of the movie. It was like, it might've been like John Wayne Gacy's house, something along those lines, but it was the actual picture of him as a clown. It was his, his clown photo. And they're like, geez, look at that stupid ass clown. I was like, do, do you know who that is? <laughs> do you know what that dude's story is? 
how about you watch this movie and then say, oh, okay, that's cool. And then realize that all that shit was real. <laughs> and then <laughs> say something like, oh, yeah, he's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. What is what, what, did, what did Stephen King say? <laughs> that the real world is so much scarier than anything he could ever make up. Right? Oh, heck yeah, man. You know, that's one of the things. Crazy ass shit out there. Especially since we <laughs> we both listen and read true crime stuff. And uh, so we know how wicked and bad people can be out there. But those are people. We're talking about Halloween and everything that comes out of that. So one that my wife always makes fun of me about is that I kind of got ruined by the book, Stephen King's book, Salem's Lot. And those creepy, those old, like, white, like, one-room steeple churches, they always give me the heebie-jeebies when we drive past them. I'm like, oh, my God, a witch, a witch trial must have happened there. You know? oh. <laughs> I bet you they have a vampire priest who's named Callahan. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. And so, you know, now that we've gotten totally, completely off the world of uh, miniatures and stuff along those lines, why don't uh, why don't we rail ourselves back into it? Uh, I know you had done some research for once on uh, some board games. I always such. do research. <laughs> I always do research. I just uh, just screw it all up. <laughs> so when we think about uh, you know um, games and games that have monsters in it or those you know halloween type themes uh, there are a couple that like jump out at us like immediately so mike what, what do you think would be one of the first ones that would jump out of us we're talking about like monsters well the, the, actually you know i kind of got stuck on a halloween theme for a moment there but there was not too long ago a kickstarter for and i wish i had the money at the time because the miniatures were amazing but there's a sleepy hollow board game that came out just look the gorgeous miniatures that's a, every time i think halloween sleepy hollow is like the first thing i think of it you know ichabod crane and such but monsters my god monsters so where, where could we go um with that yeah well this goes back to um what you know when we were joking around about steampunk and then how big that universe was and uh all the all the sub genres and everything that they have in there and so we realize this happens again because there's so much stuff. Um, so go ahead, uh, uh, give it a give it a crack. What kind of what kind of things can you think of? What kind of games could you think of that would miniature based that would be included in our hobby, which shouldn't be very difficult because <laughs> it's, it it usually smacks us in the face. I guess I, besides Sleepy Hollow, the one of the first games that comes to my mind is Malifaux. I mean, not only is the setting kind of a, a seems like a perpetual Halloween, but the miniatures certainly fit into that classic horror boutique type genre of game. And uh, they're 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 amazing miniatures, pain in the butts to put together most of the time, but still beautiful beautiful miniatures, and you can do a lot with them. Um, other games, uh, a lot of stuff that I think about uh, game wise also wind up being like card games etc like uh like card card driven games yeah there's quite a few of those and rpgs also like you know like uh, what we were talking about before with uh world of darkness that it it's an rpg game it's and it's trying to f you can use figures and find figures for those but really you know it's not a figure based game or a miniatures based game but you just have a lot of fun with it you know one of the ones that, that there's a few that come up one is Gloom, uh, and I don't know much about Gloom. I've seen it a few different, uh, a, few, a few different times. 
but it looks like it's set in a, it's kind of set in that dark world um of course there's always arkham horror which that's a that's a fantastic actually the miniatures of that are fantastic um that's something if you're really into kind of the over-the-top gruesome looking monsters <laughs> that's a that's a exactly. great place to go for them and, I and even, the other ones the other ones that are pre-painted right aren't just don't they have a line that's from fantasy flight games so there's the ones that are pre-painted um i don't Do know they pre-painted ones they might i don't know i have to look that up because okay i was thinking that might have been one of them because i know there's another let's see what was it i bought a game a long time ago then it had all the pictures uh figures from and um oh what are they the fig uh from classic from classic monsters so you have like you know a zombie and you have a mummy and you have like the robots and you have like alien looking things but then they also had like a, another series that came out that were like universal monsters and then they had one that was like movie ones so you had like freddy krueger and jason from um from friday the 13th stuff like that which was really kind of cool because you could play that figure but it was like hero clicks kind of thing where it, it was kind of like those games i can't remember like 10 years 15 years ago or something um but that was kind of cool. You'd have to repaint those figures if you wanted to play with them. But they were, you know, it was a, a, a miniatures type game. If you want to consider clicks or hero clicks or whatever those things are as miniature games. I see. I don't know about the pre-painted for Arkham Horror. Maybe they are. They kind of look. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, they do have a wave of pre-painted ones. And they also have some un do they? Okay. Un unpainted ones as well. Um, okay. So, yeah, that's that's that that's got a kind of a... Uh, noir feel to it, which is kind of fun. You know, there's no, yeah. I, I kind of like that vi that vibe. I think if I painted them, I would kind of have to paint them all in kind of grayscale. That would kind of be cool. Yeah, maybe uh, comic yeah, comic book style like grayscale. A, yeah, you'd have to do like the whole thing. You couldn't just do a couple of figures though, because it would look really odd if it was just like half of your figures were done like that. Yeah, but we know that's not we know that's not true anymore because Into the Spider Verse allowed one character to be in that noir look, and it looked great. I wouldn't do that. I know. I'm just kidding. I, it's, it looked great. It did look great, but you know, uh, just I'm just saying. No, if I did, if I were to have those, I would paint them all in grayscale comic book style. Ah, okay. Uh, so the where I was going and thinking about this because I was thinking about you know Halloween. So we have, you know, if we went with like traditional types of games or miniature games, what would what would we have? So you know, you did say uh, Malfo. Um, but I was going towards more towards, um, like Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. It's all monsters. You have your crew, <laughs> you might have a bard here or there, you have some dead people and everything else is monsters. And that's for me, you know, in the Halloween is all about monsters, not just the, the holiday part of it. Um, or the traditional, what we think of, of, of as Halloween. So that's where I was going with it. And then that dovetails into the whole other universe of horror or monsters. Because I was thinking more of the monsters thing. So we also have War, you know, gosh, I hate to say it. Well, we'll just stick on Warhammer and Age of Sigmar because there's lots of monster types out there also. And you can go into 40K if you want to, but you have demons and, uh, you know, all the chaos folks or um 
Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of monsters in there. I mean, you have entire races that are monsters, like the Skaven Rats, and um, you have, like, the, the Beast Claw Raiders, which are those big ogre-looking dudes, and, of course, Uruks, which are the green-skinned orcs. I mean, there's certainly there's certainly monsters in it. Um, it'd be cool if they had a Halloween theme somewhere along the line, but I, I wouldn't hold my breath uh, on it. I wouldn't either. I think they just use, like, to, you know, the traditional... Uh, army makeups that they had before and just kind of, you know, change them a little bit here and there. Well, you you could also use, like, I guess they just had a, you know, they, they're they just reducing the, releasing the Lumineth Lords um, and they just released, and I cannot think of the name of it and I'm not looking it up because I just want to call it this now, but I heard somebody call it the Battle Cattle, which is basically like a huge model. It's a big <laughs> it's a big Minotaur slash looking bull type character for them. You could do a lot of different things with them. But yeah, Battle Cattle is its new name forever. Um, and I th- I want to say, so yeah, when we get out of the science fiction, but still the monster kind of thing is Aliens. Uh, there's definitely an Aliens tabletop game out there. Uh, it's had a lot of financial problems here and there, people getting their products. I want to say it might have started as a Kickstarter a couple of years ago. Are you talking about um, Aliens vs. Predator from Protoss Games? Uh, it might be. I, 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 I saw Aliens, and it probably was the Aliens vs. Predator. Yeah. Um, that was, a, and, that was uh, a dumpster fire, from what I understand, of a Kickstarter. For, yeah. Um, Cthulhu, Death May Die from Simon. Simon has Hate also. Those look, you know, really freaking awesome because they're they're going outside. I mean, they're using a traditional like evil bad things and expanding these figures. And yeah, you can play games with them, but some of these figures are starting to get pretty large. I've seen you know, 28, 32, um, 54, 75, and I've seen a hundred millimeter. Uh, figures those are pretty big and those are centerpieces those aren't you know those aren't ones that you you know I guess you could just spray paint them and and put them on your tabletop but I think for most of us in this hobby if we see something that's like that we want to take our time on it and probably not play with it that much right and hate's based off a graphic novel I believe yeah and uh, yeah, we're not going to talk. Let's not. We're not going to talk anymore about Cthulhu stuff because we're going to do a whole episode on Cthulhu, and we have a oh, we, can't wait. we have an awesome interview. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's great lore. We have an awesome inter- interview lined up. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I'm trying. You know, it's hard to work with talk. people in this business these days. <laughs> um, we have an awesome interview lined up with a world-renowned HP Lovecraft expert. I was actually surprised he agreed to do an interview. So, cool. yep. And so, it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, so it'll be fun. So, um, actually, one that you didn't bring up that has been like one of those, uh, what would you call them? Almost grail games, especially for me because I can't find anything anywhere that's for sale that I can afford, is Kingdom Death. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we see, I see tons of the survivors people painting those because you have all those skin tones and you have the osl that you could use with it which is really freaking awesome and then you have that knight uh the smoke knight guy and you see multiple colors of that guy being done and it's they're such fabulous sculpts you don't really want to play with them and i don't even know how the game works i just know there's lots and lots of pieces and you can't find them anywhere 
but that's just me. Maybe I'm not digging far enough into it. Um, but that's another game that I think is, you know, pretty much based on that. Uh, you know, the monsters and that whole death and destruction. Not much destruction, but destruction is Monster Apocalypse from Private Air Press, which is Kaiju and other large robots, and those are pretty cool games. Um, nice and simple. Um, all kinds of um, cool stuff that you can paint up, and then you have different tiers and things like that. If, but, I uh, I can just keep going on different ones. We have the Walking Dead, Walking Dead game. You had that for a while, didn't you? I oh, have. Still have it. Um, okay, so I had two different Walking. I had two different Walking Dead games. I had okay. All Out War by Manic Games, which is fine. We played it a couple times. It's more of a skirmish style game. Uh, it's more like your typical miniature board game where you have units and stuff on a field. Then I also had. Mm um the walking dead no sanctuary which was a kickstarter um i never played it because and i sold i sold it because i opened up the miniatures and i gotta tell you i was one of the biggest it was one of the biggest kickstarters that i was so excited for the miniatures are so bad i mean like like the renders were amazing and like even if they look even if they got to three quarters of the quality from the renders but, like, you know, for example, they have Rick Grimes. He's reaching out, like, pointing a gun at somebody, right? Whatever's in his hand doesn't look like a gun. It looks like a weird, melty piece of plastic. And, you know, just, like, things like, you know, they had Daryl on a motorcycle. But he was, the way, and it was all glued together and put together. But when you pulled him out, he was, like, rocked back. His hands were up in the air about, you know, almost an inch full away from the handlebars. And like there was no way to fix that, and so I was just like, "There's, I'm not keeping that." There, every miniature I look at makes me want to cry even more and more. Um, and I was, was really it that flimsy, rubber, rubbery, plastic stuff. I don't. I, 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 I have to be honest. I can't even tell you tell you because I saw Rick and went, "Okay, some this has got to be better." I went to Daryl, which was a miniature I was really looking forward to painting. And I saw that and I put it back and I packed it up and then I wound up selling it like six months later because I'm just like, this is, uh, this is crap on a shingle. Well, the ones I've seen, the ones I've seen in the store, I guess that's the other, I can't the other set that you have. Yeah. Um, that's my manic. Those pretty good though. Yeah. The manic ones are good. They're just small. Oh, because they're from, okay. Yeah. They're from manic games. Um, I don't remember who did the no sanctuary game. Um, whatever, you know, it's, it is what it is. Um, not everything that you buy on Kickstarter is going to be a home run. I've learned that a few times, but, um, the walking dead, uh, all that war is pretty good. There's a lot of expansions for it. There's maps and stuff along those tabletop maps that you can play on, etc. So that's fun. And the miniatures are pretty good. They're a little bit, uh, they're small. They are true 28 millimeter. And, um, some of them have, uh, just like irreparable, mold lines like there's a michonne that i was kind of i was going to paint as a display piece and uh yeah she's got a mold line through her dreadlocks and i was like well maybe i could fix that and then cleaning it up more and more and you realize well that's not that's no longer a mold line that's a mold slip you know but you know stuff like that happens i'm sure if i contacted man at games they would probably do something about it but that will require me to have a level of enthusiasm for painting that um, that I don't have right now. Maybe down the road I will. Yeah. But uh, so, anyways, yeah. Anything you could, I guess. I mean, that's what the problem with doing a Halloween show is, especially in the context of miniatures, 
is that anything scary could easily be related to Halloween, you know? And so like we could go on, you know, besides just kingdom death that, you know, there's a whole bunch of our whole genre, really. I mean, very rarely do you see anybody paint, uh, something with uh you know lollipops and butterflies you know <laughs> even i find myself going i long to paint something that's not necessarily dreary you know and then you throw in that concept of when you're painting contrast and so hyper contrast a lot of times automatically gives you because of the depth of the shadows kind of gives you kind of a, a dark morbid look to it not every time but a, a lot of the times and so even what we do, all of what we do kind of has a has a dark background to it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's called a war game. War is about destruction and death and stuff like that. You know, it's, you know, World War Twos or Napoleonics or Civil War games or your fantasy games, pirate games. It's about usually, you know, I would I would say a good chunk of them are about killing the other guy. Sure. Yeah, there's some of them that are objective based. And, you know, we, we kind of, you know, go into that. You know, I'm not a weathering kind of person, but this allows for a lot of weathering. And if it's not just, if it's not dust and mud, it's blood splatter and guts, and, you know, and chaos. That's what it's all about, you know. You got Nurgle running around and guts and everything falling out. And, hey, we love it. Well, even, in, even in the context of Halloween and clothing and such along those lines, you know, you... you Bright, shiny, clean clothing is never really as scary, per se, as tattered rags, you know, that people are wearing, etc., along those lines. And so you have that opportunity for adding texture and character to a model by, you know, uh, using dots and dashes and lines to create texture on a, on a cloak or a dress or a shirt, etc. You know, something, add texture to kind of anything. And you can even use that whether you're doing true metallic or non-metallic metals to kind of make beaten up, you know, beaten up metals, etc. A lot of stippling can happen to make things look nice and nice and old and weathered, or maybe even what is the word I'm thinking of? I don't want to say brushed metal, but kind of, Oh Jesus. Now I'm, now I'm blanking on the word. Oh, well I'll come back. You know, and, and when we finish recording, it'll come back to me. Uh, okay. That's fine. <laughs> And so, um, but anyway, so yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities in, in these, but I, you know, I'm just saying that the, I do have miniatures that are kind of like, I have a model of a, um, a fairy that is a 3d print from a long, from a while ago that somebody had done, like the company was sculpted it and then 3d printed it. And yeah, I could definitely go a horror route with it, but honestly, if I painted it as is, you know, it would be kind of a shiny happy fairy <laughs> yeah i see it every once in a while with those pink space marines and unicorns yeah i don't know i think it doesn't make me happy I mean, I think... it doesn't make me want to go out and destroy worlds and things come on <laughs> well i think actually i'm going to wind up having to do a pink space marine with purple polka dots because my daughter keeps calling me out on it because i always make the joke about you know paint you know if you want to paint your blood angels whatever color you want to put a tutu on them don't care that your models paint them pink with purple polka dots and the last time she heard me say that she went yeah right and i'm like what do you mean yeah right she's like yeah you'd ever like you'd ever do that so i think i might have to do it just to to prove her wrong because you know that's how i roll 
Gotta gotta keep your children in line by constantly proving them wrong. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. All right, man. So let's get back to Halloween. Have you found any any cool miniatures out there? Dude, there's so many. It's it's I thought steampunk had a lot, but I think just I think there is definitely a a large chunk of people that just enjoy those skeletons or or devils or you know uh, people that have ratty armor and stuff because it's everywhere and it's so it's it's amazing and every single sculpt is different there you know yet your armors might be kind of close maybe there's only so many poses the human body can do so some are going to be kind of close but there's so many of them and you can take them from you know the person who just stepped on the battlefield to a person who's been on the battlefield for a week or two years and make it more dark make it more you know moody gosh i don't even know where to begin because there's so many um i was uh looking at uh, some kickstarter stuff because uh with my 3d printer i'm sorry not kickstarter stuff i'm sorry 3d printing and those folks I, I figured this month people would be throwing lots of sculpts out there and there are tons of really cool sculptors out there that are doing stuff arch villain games um and heroes infinite they both are doing a uh, circus based and uh, let's see one is called circus grotesque and the other one is carn evil circus and those sculpts blew my mind and i'm seriously thinking about doing the patreon just to get those sculpts because they're fantastic now is it 3d and printed they are 3d print so they send the stls to you you print them out if you guys like that stuff ritual casting also has some fantastic bust and um figures that you can uh, print out also so that's you know that's just part of what the patreon thing does so um with uh, the 3d prints they just give you give you a lot of stls and you can print them out on your own and the sculpts I've had in the past have been pretty good, and they've printed out very nicely. But these things are, like, off the hook. Like, I don't even know if my printer, even though it's not even six or eight months old, I don't even think it could, it could do the type of um, uh, detail that these things have. So it's, it's pretty fascinating what they have. Uh, you can go to My Mini Factory also if you guys have 3D printers and look at some of their stuff. Sometimes you can have people, if you don't have a 3D printer, someone can print it out for you. I think some... 3d print websites would print it out for you if you don't have it let's say there's something you really really like and i guess for another 10 bucks or whatever it is they'll print it out for you and send it to you um but yeah i can't even describe the the types of like you know things that are out there we you know we know what scares us and you know what's impressive looking but there, there's so many of them out there i can't even i can't even pinpoint any of them out and even in kickstarter there's a bunch that are that are a bunch of games that are coming out that are based off of kind of the horrors under a science fiction. A Twisted Fables from Dimension Games, Return to a Planet Apocalypse from Peterson Games, and the one that I'm sponsoring, not sponsoring, but one that I'm um, backing is The Thing from Pendragon Games. Dude, that, that the sculpts look really good, and even if they're not as good as they're showing the renders, I, I'm pretty happy. You know, I did the... Uh, Big Trouble in Little China one. Yeah, those sculpts looked immaculate. And when you finally got the prints, they weren't perfect, but I still enjoyed them. They're still nice. Um, 
So yeah, it's, I'm kind of like overloaded with the amount of stuff. If I'm looking for some zombies, I can find 50 different companies that do zombies from um, heroic size to just standard uh, 28 millimeter to ones that are falling apart, you know. Or if I'm looking for demons, I can find those anywhere. Um, so, so we have all these miniatures and figures um, <laughs> laying around the house. So where and how do you find inspiration to paint all these things, Mike? Okay, Mike, well, I've talked enough about all the stuff that I can't even comprehend when it comes to monsters and Halloween type of figures and 3D prints and Kickstarters. What about you? What kind of things can you tell us about that I haven't already blabbed about? When I first got back into miniatures, and then I kind of found the world of painting like kind of a year and a half, two, two years later, there were two miniatures. My first two resin miniatures I bought. The first was, I mentioned this one before, is the Mindworks game Puppeteer. Um, what a perfect Halloween type model. Skeleton, or wooden puppet master over a tiny uh, child puppet. Uh, super creepy, super awesome. Can't wait to start painting it um, uh, for my niece. And also can't wait to get the new version of it, which is just I can't even put into words. It's colossal in size. It's a, it's a huge, it's a diorama in and of itself. The, how, bi how big is that? I've seen pictures. It's a beautiful sculpt, but how I didn't realize it was a big piece. How big is that? Um, the new one, you mean? You know? Yeah. I think it's a 75 millimeter piece. Holy shit. That's huge. It's, I, I'm so excited. <laughs> it's either 54 or 75. I don't. I'm not, Either one of those. That's big. Yeah, that's pretty dark. And you, when you think about it, it's the puppet master, and there's like six other figures with it, like you, mm -hmm. three or four puppet children and other type of puppet toys and stuff. And it actually comes with. Uh, I wasn't sure about it, but uh, I talked to somebody who was posting pictures online that they had received theirs because mine should be here any day now. Um, if it actually came with the wooden floor and it does. So I'm so excited about that because that's the last I have to think about when I don't have to think about a base. Totally excited. The other miniature I bought was by Claudio Cassini, Claudio Cassini Art. Now, uh, people have heard me mention his name before because I bought a 75 millimeter Leonardo that he had sculpted. And that's how I found out about the Leonardo was I was, I'm on his mailing list. But he did a scarecrow that is just absolutely amazing. I, I actually used it in a class at the Nova Open when I took a sketching class. And so right now I have it with a light sketch on it. I haven't taken it to the next step and put started putting colors on it, but it's more in a, the Griselle style, um, which is kind of the monochromatic putting in lights and highlights and such. Uh, really enjoyed playing with it, but it's a, it's a beautiful model and uh it's scary, too. So basically, it's a scarecrow who is holding a giant axe slash skies type thing to reap souls, maybe? Um, and so I've seen a few different versions of him. I actually originally had plans because of the way it's kind of, he's got like kind of a mechanical, almost it's a, a grieved arm or a, a grieve on his arm in the way it looked. I actually contemplated modeling it, like painting it as the Hayseed uh, Junkrat from Overwatch using that kind of color scheme for it. And so um, I, I, I might still do it that way, but uh, it's actually absolutely one of my favorite miniatures. Totally fits in the world of Halloween. Um, I actually bought uh, Jack-O-Lanterns from Secret Weapon Miniatures 
to be a part of it. Um, and so my kind of vision was him kind of standing in a pumpkin patch, protecting it. I don't know what he's doing, protecting the babies or whatever. So, but that's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite miniatures of all times to begin with. Another thing, though, a place that's a lot of fun, and you're going to hear us mention them a lot because they do have one of the widest diversity of miniatures I've ever seen, and that's Reaper. Reaper has a huge line of Halloween miniatures, and every year, of course, they do more Halloween miniatures for around the Halloween time. And so you have Halloween Sophies, which you even mentioned that you liked one of the ones that you saw. Uh, oh, no, that was a pirate Sophie. Yeah, it was It was a pirate one, but it was pretty darn cool. And then you realize they have like 45 different pirates. Right, right, right. Exactly. But they do. They have a, <laughs> they have a ton of different Halloween-themed miniatures. The nice thing about it, if you were somebody who was going to do a D&D Halloween campaign, they're a great place to go because they have a lot of those Halloween miniatures are also in, they're not just in metal, but they have them in their bones material, which is about half the price. And so if you wanted to just paint up some quick Halloween miniatures to do a Halloween themed campaign for D&D or maybe even make a little Halloween display for your house. You know, there you go. I mean, there, they would be a great option. Um, you know, so they have a bunch of Halloween miniatures. I've, I've seen, you know, if you make if you make a mistake and type in Halloween miniatures in your Google search, the first bazillion in that search are going to be related to dollhouse stuff. Don't dismiss it. Um, I found a really cool, Jack and evil looking Jack in the box that I'm going to put on the stage for my niece's version of the, the puppeteer that I'm doing. So I thought that, so like there, you have to weed through stuff, but I'm finding uh, now not only is more of this type dollhouse stuff showing up um, online, but it's also showing up in stores like Michael's, etc. Even the Walmart I go to now has a little section of, holiday themed miniatures and so so like for people who make little settings and stuff along those lines and you know i occasionally that's where i found some bones and stuff like that that uh and bone piles that would look nice in a miniature situation because you all know it's not a base for a miniature if it doesn't have a skull you know that's the number one rule right <laughs> yeah and you know there's also you know if you're going in to look for terrain and stuff uh, a lot of these places would have the uh, like little villages and stuff, mm -hmm. things like that, and they would have you know street posts or little pumpkins or skulls that people would use to decorate their little Halloween towns and stuff like their Christmas villages and things. Um, but that's a good place too, especially when they go on sale; they're a lot cheaper. Then you can have like ruins and things for you to shoot around or. Not only not only just that, man. When I like this is a, a I one of the things I also grabbed was you know that's a good point that you bring up the village stuff because all those villages type things all have roads and stuff and a lot of times they do like little strips that are about uh you know an inch or two or two or three inches wide and then they're like kind of strips of like kind of this rubbery material but they have imprinted on them like cobblestones and brick pathways easy peasy clip them out cut them as a base I paint them. I've actually used them a couple of times for the for cobblestone. Love them. Easy done. Don't have to think about it. Don't have to carve cobblestone. Don't have to mess with a putty and a putty and a stamp or anything along those lines. Totally awesome. Keep your eyes out. Those things are all like in Michaels and stuff like that. Those strips of roads. Those are those are definitely out there. Um, you can also I've seen I um I saw online. I didn't buy it, but I also saw like textured asphalt with a line with lines on it. I'm like, oh my god, how easy could you like cut that out, 
put a zombie on it. You know what I mean? Like put some grass, cut it up a little bit, put some grass tuff on it. Boom. You got a zombie base, you know, it's strolling down the highway. Cool. Or battle tech. (laughs) You're right. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's battle tech. We all know is the ultimate Halloween theme board tabletop game. It is. (laughs) Especially with all the thousands of names they have. It's scary. You know, (laughs) Ah, damn it. There went our last listener. Shoot. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I guess we're, we're just talking to each other now. talking to each other from now from now on what what like is there anything like when i say halloween and miniature was there anything that popped out to you per se when you were doing your research really honestly the first thing that jumped to my mind was dungeons and dragons i mean there's some you know there's just so many monsters that are involved and that you know that's how that's what i was thinking about when i said when i was thinking of halloween maybe it's all the movies i was watching maybe there are monster based and not like ghost based and things like that um but that's exactly where i went so then i just started to go from there it's like okay well what other stuff do we have but if we start to talk about like the halloween itself i mean definitely i think kingdom death was one of the first ones that popped up in my head uh malfo definitely because there's so many awesome freaking um figures and games and stuff you could use and unfortunately, I started to stray a little bit into the Cthulhu mythos, but uh, we don't want to do that quite yet. Nope. So, um, but those are the main ones, and then it started to spread out from there and started to the little tendrils were going out to to different things like monsters. So, so Dan, talk to me about Halloween inspiration, and when you got a miniature in front of you that's Halloween themed, what what can our listeners do to kind of get in the mood and find places or get inspired? Well, if we're, you know, we try to find themes when, when we're, we're putting our armies together or squads and stuff. So I'll, if I was putting something together, I guess my first one would, if it's Halloween based or if it's monster based, looking at horror as, as a whole, I think the first place I would go to would be like TV, movies, stuff like that. You know, if, if you're playing uh, Walking Dead, you know, hey, you know, this is what they look like. Dirty clothes, there might be some blood, you know, some little bit of gore in there. If you're talking about monsters, you would use, if there, you know, you would use uh, a movie that's based off of. So like Monster Apocalypse, you know, uh, what kind of kaiju are you looking at? Maybe there's one that they base it off of. Maybe you use those colors. Maybe you don't. Um, we could always talk about the internet. Like, hey, do a search. I want to look at robot. And you type that in, and there'll be thousands of pictures of robots, works of art that you enjoy. Uh, you know, I, I like digging around with uh, Magic the Gathering stuff. There's so many great cards and, and art within each of those cards any of those can inspire an army or inspire a specific character or a figure. And that would be, that would be a great place to look at also. And, you know, like I said, I usually go online and say, show me broken thing or show me monster. And it show you know, it, it give me some ideas because my imagination isn't that great. So I have to copy other people's stuff, not like recasting, copying people's stuff more like, that looks cool. I want to imitate that at Dan's level of painting. Um, we could go, you know, people that do have a little bit better imagination could probably go with box art or um, their own nightmares or observations, you know, uh, maybe. But 
that's that's about as far as I can go. This is it's so broad out there of what you want to bring to the table, what you want to uh, how you how you want to create your your figures or how you want to paint them up and what colors you want to use and that stuff. There's only so many different ways we can do it. Uh, with with horror though, you know, I, I think we have a li a lot more leniency because if you're painting humans, well, you know, you can make them. You can dress them up pretty much any way you want to. Got a pair of jeans or it's a pair of khakis. Uh, you know, black shirt, red shirt, white shirt, don't matter. Um, same with some of the, the armies and that sort. But so, yeah, when, uh, when, I, when I'm painting those kinds of things, I'm looking for inspiration. I'm looking usually at art to try to get colors down. Uh, I'm trying to find, you know, what, uh, what colors are attractive, what colors go together, and then try to build a base around that that's usually how I how I do things I don't come up with the base first base is usually the last and I have to come up with colors or what it's gonna look like unless I'm looking for a specific theme so what about you what kind of inspiration do you find out there so I think the first the kind of the first place that I always go is um, I like looking at internet's great but if it's something that I have like reference material on, like for example, if I'm painting a vampire, I have a few of the old Vampire the Masquerade books. Um, they have wonderful artwork in them, and so I like looking at I, I like looking at those and getting kind of inspirations for color schemes and setting. I think one of the things that's what is important about Halloween is that, of course, you know you have that things are dark. You know, it's always Halloween. It's typically usually a setting at night when the that's when all of the, the scary stuff comes out is at night. So you're always talking about kind of that nighttime vibe, feel, dark, gritty. What it lends itself to is a great opportunity to practice object source lighting. Um, for example, you know, you could have a character that's kind of stocky, evil, waiting around the corner under a lamppost and the lights etc you would you would of course paint the light in the direction of which the light, the, lamp, the light was coming from the lampshade etc could give you a dark kind of vibe and feel to it um there's also the other side of it too is there the 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 neat side about halloween is the exaggeration side and so that's one of the things i like looking at and that's one of the reasons i think i loved the claudio cassini uh the scarecrow so much is so exaggerated so kind of crazy crazy sized weapon etc for this thing that doesn't necessarily look like it could handle a weapon like that kind of that extreme that uh you know typically extremes are scary to people and i don't mean like you know extreme home makeover etc i mean more stuff like you know that from one extreme to the next excuse me um and so those are the kind of things i i kind of get inspired by looking at, at at physical pictures i do do internet searches um one of the things that i enjoyed when I was looking at originally at the scarecrow um, for a color scheme for it was looking at historical, like I actually typed in historical scarecrows. And so I kind of looked at those type of pictures and I typed in creepy real life scarecrows. And uh, that's a search I'm going to regret for a while. Um, Cause that is one of those ones that'll give you nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but it's okay. You know, so there's, there's, there's a bunch of different routes that you can go and there's so many different interpretations of, you know, what are, I'm trying to think of a different uh, 
monsters that are out there that that people know of but never heard you know haven't really heard of like things like the jabberwocky you know like i i've heard of a jabberwocky i've read stories of the jabberwocky in it but i i was kind of curious to see what it actually looked like so doing a google search and then hitting the image side of it to see people's artistic interpretations of it was very cool looking um that's a you know that that that's kind of has helped me and seeing you know, you see those type of pictures too. Those are usually not just drawn as a figure. You know, you don't just see the Jabberwocky. You see the Jabberwocky or a werewolf or a vampire in a setting. So that can also help, you know, kind of guide you in the route that you want to go. Like I love kind of like looking at art and learning and the things I've looked at and learned from it are things like, you know, a lot of times that reflect the reflections of colors on faces plays out more in the shadows than in the highlights and so the highlights going to be bright but in the shadows might pick up the purple from a cloak or the red from a cloak more than let's say like your highlights would pick up and so like you know things like learning uh, looking at stuff like halloween pictures has really helped me try to understand environmental lighting because you know you always have that typical ghost fire a ghost fire campsite story or campfire story ghost story where the person puts the flashlight under their face and like on a night like tonight you know like you know <laughs> those type of things and you know the hook was hang dangling from the car handle um and so that that kind of lighting actually really it's good to study it'll help you become better braver and in the end happier as a painter but that was my, my that was my long-winded thing for a look at books and a look at the internet. Well, yeah, unfortunately, I think we're gonna find that with all of them. It's like, so how do you get inspiration? Well, I go on the internet and I type in Space Marine. <laughs> yes, at some level, yes. But we can definitely what? talk about. It. We can expand upon <laughs> some of it. You know, we don't have. What we, does a vampire look like? Right. Well, that, see, that's a great example, though, because like, what there are so many different interpretations of what a vampire is. You know, right now, and that's true. My wife and I are watching Nosferatu season two, which is based off a book by Joel Hill, who's Stephen King's son, and that is a very different type of vampire. It's also, well, I mean, geez, even in a Stephen King lore, you can go to Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers is another type of vampire, or you can go. I mean, succubus and incubi, succubi and incubi are are types of vampires, really, because they drain life force with you. They just have different looks and means, per se. You know, vampires bite you, whereas you know the other ones do you. Um, but it's all kind of the same. <laughs> Anyways, they need they they're kind of the same kind of concept. People, the fear of draining life force away from things, and so even though. They call them different things. And even if you look back and research in different cultures, that's another actually, that's a great way to kind of get inspiration too. And so like, instead of if I was looking up like vampires, I probably wouldn't look up vampires per se. I would look up Egyptian vampires. I would look up uh, the Chinese vampires or something that had a different cultural take on it to get a different look on it. And each... You know, those things are universal. And that's one of the reasons why I think Halloween has resonated with people so much is that fear of the dead is universal. That's something across all uh, all cultures. There's no cultures really that are religions that really just kind of, while they honor the dead and everything, there's still that, that fear of death is always looming there. And it's throughout all the cultures. And if you look at, you know, that's a, the, the dawn of all the zombie movies. That's also 
what creates vampires, unexplained deaths, you know, those type of things are prime areas for different types of genre or folklore and which of course creates different genres, etc. So, but yeah, definitely don't just look up a scarecrow, look up like what a scarecrow would look like in China. Look like what it might look like because they have fields in China as well. And they probably use something to scare away pests and birds, etc. And so those are opportunities, you know, to see what other cultures do, what their scarecrows look like. And that might give you a different idea or even just different cultural celebrations for Halloween. Those are great ways to find inspirations for painting. So with all that being said, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about for Halloween or should we move on to the next segment? Let's go to the next segment. So the next segment here is our kind of our little what's going on with us. So Dan, what is on your painting table right now? Well, let's see. Oh, so much stuff. It's been a pretty active couple of of weeks. Uh, so let's see. Uh, I got uh, my ghost dry brushes. Uh, those came in. You should have one of those in one of your boxes somewhere. I don't know if you tried them out. Um, I have not They're yet. pretty interesting. Uh, I, I, I was at first disappointed because the uh, bristles were so long. But I was use, I've was i been using makeup brushes, which are really short and stiff. Um, so when I actually gave these a try and you know actually thinking about drying brushing as it should be instead of just slopping paint on they worked fantastic i was super impressed with these so i got to play with them a little bit more i just did one test piece because i'm busy uh painting uh um lionel for uh, my dark angels still but i have some other stuff going on um but that was um that was that's my i guess the big thing um Let's see, for Kickstarter, uh, the thing game is over, so now I have to wait, like, I guess a year before I get any of the bits and pieces and stuff, um, since I, um, bought into that one. Battletech stuff is now shipping, so I can't wait until I get a gigantic box, and that's all we will talk about is Battletech stuff for the next, uh, couple months, because there's so much stuff that I have to paint. Um, so the podcast is going to go on hiatus. <laughs> yeah, it's, gonna, it's not going to go on hiatus. It'd be like, oh, geez, Dan's talking about BattleTech again uh, instead of records and everything else. So, <laughs> so uh, let's see. Went to the GW store and we picked up the space, the big Space Marines, the Bund or the uh, McFarland uh, plane at Space Marines. So I guess uh, oh, they're called they're called artist something? proof. The artist proof. Are they artist proof? Yes. Well, I don't think it'd be artists will be doing anything with them. Uh, people will be painting them, but not artists, not in my house. Um, so, yeah, we're, I think we're going to do something with that. We're, we'll uh, we'll figure out how we're going to uh, do that. Maybe, uh, I don't know, paint. We'll paint them up, obviously. Uh, since it's Halloween, I uh, bought a bunch of ghost shrimp, and I'm trying to keep them alive until the 31st, and now I shall sacrifice them to the god of the toilet bowl. Um, let's see. What the, the hell are, what, what, wait, <laughs> what, <laughs> what the what? hell are ghost shrimp? Is this like, are you, have you ghost gotten shrimp. into like sea monkeys or something? No, they're like real, sh they're freshwater shrimp. They're little clear things. They look like little ghosts and they run around and stuff. <laughs> they're pretty nice size right now. I've been feeding them pretty good. Yeah. So we have like one, two, we have three active fish tanks in our house. So, um, my little one, I use it to, uh, 
for uh, vegetation and stuff, my plants, and uh, I've decided I want to have some little shrimp in there. So that one sits on my painting table because it's only one gallon. I only have a couple of shrimp in there. They won't last very long anyway. They don't, they don't last long. Um, so yeah, that's that too. Uh, let's see. I got the Dan Evil Spirits LP in green, limited to 666 prints. I got one of those, limited edition. What was that again? Uh, the Damned LP. Okay. Evil Spirits. Gotcha. I got it in green vinyl. It is a limited edition of 666 prints because it's October. And when I went to the GW store, my son was eyeballing the Age of Sigmar uh, Malignants. The ghosty looking thing, so I don't know. I gotta figure out what uh, what's going on in his brain about that. But no age of Sigmar in this house. We're only forty k. <laughs> so uh, yeah, not a whole lot. It's, it's been super busy the last couple of weeks, so I haven't had a lot of time to paint. But I just want to knock out Lionel so that I can be done with him and put him somewhere so I don't have to look at him anymore. And then I got to do that stupid base, which is like five freaking Space Marines. It takes me like six years to paint five Space Marines. So um, I just, maybe I'll use the ghost brushes and just dry brush them because they're all dead anyway. So it don't matter. Okay. So that's, that's pretty much all I'm doing. It's been a busy uh, couple weeks. So what about you? You painting anything recently? Okay. So um, I took a little break from my non-metallic gold experiment. Uh, I'm actually getting back to that tomorrow night, which is nice. Um, I wanted to try to do something with super high contrast uh, on a miniature that I had not, I, I have no like personal vested interest in, like it's not going to be a competition piece. It's just something I have. And so I got one of the Reaper Bones Black, which is their higher grade bones material of a dwarf mm -hmm. smiter that's enlarged. And so it's a dwarf, but he's kind of been blown up in size. And so he's good size. He's about 54 millimeters. And so I tried a few new things like uh, there was a sewer making a sewer base video by Vince Ventruella and then Sam Lenz was did a basing video for his Ogrid Thermitage they, is it, or was it Myra and Myuroid, whatever, the one with the shield and the spear. And I actually combined kind of the two of those things. So I kind of made like a little platform that had a little lava base thing with uh, and Sam had used like these toothpicks to make kind of like a spiked uh rail but i used some of those bones that i found to make kind of a rail like you know kind of a a little fence out of the bones and use some chains in between and like i found a chain at a walmart for but i think a chains for like 99 cents so i was like all right i'll just use i'll wrap that around around it so it was fun i uh, it was an experiment for me to do a few things first was a high contrast armor um, and so I only used two colors. I used Vallejo Dark Sea Blue, sea blue and um, Reaper's Mold, Yellow Mold, which is the same thing, a, a very close to uh, uh, Vallejo's Ice Yellow. Um, I'm just out of Ice Yellow, and I had Yellow Mold, and uh, Michael Proctor from Clover Crow Studios kind of pointed it out that I could use that instead, so that was pretty awesome. The second thing that I wanted to try with it was to do Lava, which I've never tried to play lava, paint Lava before, and that kind of... I don't know. That mixed results, mixed vibe on how that feels, whether it feels like lava or not. We'll post a picture of it on, on Instagram and all of our means, uh, our different social media areas. And the last thing I wanted to do is I wanted to try non-metallic copper. It came out okay. Like the copper, 
some of the areas look really like copper, and then some of the areas just look like they're kind of a reddish brown with high contrast. Like, I think I did a really good job on the head of it. His weapon is a hammer, uh, but I did a terrible job on the shield as far as creating a copper, copper look. And so, it is what it is. You know what? I, I The miniature itself is probably not complete as far as a paint job goes. But I'm done with it. I'm, it's now. I, I, I guess, as Roman would say, I'm going to abandon it. I've I've gotten out of the out of painting this. What I'm going to get out of it now? I'm. I tried painting it a little bit last night, and I feel like I'm spinning my wheels on it. And so, I'm going to take some pictures, post it online, and move on. Uh, get back to finishing up my sequitur prime, and then working on the puppeteer. Uh, miniature but um i got the ghost dry brush from you uh, you gave me two of them i haven't tried them out yet um also you gave me you got me the bandai not bandai the mcfarland toy space hey, marine man. and what we're you know i'm trying to listeners out there help me push dan towards this i'm trying to get him and i, I like we're going to paint him at the same time see what comes out the way they do i'm just going to let dan pick my chapter um that i have to paint because i'm not while I do love me some good old-fashioned space vampires, I'm not married to any chapter or anything, especially since I sold most of my space marines. Yeah, I'm going to let him pick. But listeners, push him. Tell him you want to see it. Oh, come see on. I know what I'm painting. You need to come up with your own. I'll make it really hard, like Lamentors or something. Maybe that's what I should do mine. Ah, God, I don't want to paint yellow. Well, you could do Lamentors. I would, yeah, I could do Lamentors, <laughs> but I was also thinking about doing a mentor mentor legion. Like one of the fr- you could do mentor. one of the first uh, images I ever saw in a white dwarf was of a mentor legion dude, and I thought that was really cool. Nothing wrong with doing that. Do whatever one you want to do. All right, I'll do it. Man- I'll do it mentor legion, but I want to do them together. We can like post progress pictures on social media and stuff like that. So once you finish your lion, you know, be in good shape. But yeah, okay. but other yeah, at some point. you know, and that's one one thing I you know I don't have any I only have one Kickstarter left that I haven't gotten, and that is the uh, Bones Five, which I'm not planning on getting that till maybe middle of next year, and so yeah, that their their pledge manager hasn't even closed yet, so. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, and I got so many miniatures from that Kickstarter from Nocturna. You know, with the large hunter bust and like five other miniatures that I, I, I'm pretty set for a little while as far as painting. Plus, I have the puppet master or the puppeteer coming and I asked for that steampunk miniature that I talked about for Christmas. So that I'm kind of I'm kind of set on on that stuff. I'm trying to be good and not only buy stuff that I need to fill needs. Like when I rent, like I just bought a couple of paints from GW because I was out of Ratskin flesh and uh, Beast Gore flesh. Or is it fur? I don't know. It's one of them. Yeah, Something like that. Two, there are two fleshy colors. They're great uh, for working with copper. And so, yeah, I had a total disaster with... Uh, I totally... I, I literally, like, had the pots open and I hadn't put them... Like, this. these are, like, the two of the only paints that I hadn't transferred to dropper bottles. And so, literally, within a succession of, like, 20 seconds, I kind of wasn't paying attention. I would kind of want to put my paintbrush in the water and instead like my hand knocked over the beast of gore flesh one onto my palette. And then when I reacted, I knocked over the ratskin flesh onto my palette as well. So I had to go replace. You didn't uh, take a picture of that and send it 
put it online? Well, I know because everybody likes to see. Yeah. Built well, our, yeah, we're main, mainly GW washes though, the number one things that you see. But no, I did not. I did not, and I don't. I don't care that people post them, but I'm not gonna. That's not my thing is to post those. I put all my stuff in dropper bottles, so those were the only two I had not. And so when I purchased new versions of them, I immediately put them in dropper bottles. Now I will say this too. It all got a lot easier because the last wave of dropper bottles that I ordered and I got, which I had totally forgotten about. So I ordered them from Hong Kong back in March, I want to say, and they arrived at the end of July. Oh, wow. Um, and I totally had forgotten Dang. I ordered them. But actually, the whole set, I bought 50 of 50 dropper bottles. They came with 15 funnels. I went, I was like, holy crap. Those. Dude, that where was this like when I was putting all the other doing all my other dropper bottles? Um, so, but anyways, no, that's what I got. I I think actually looking at you know I'm looking at Claudio Cassini's art again right now because I was just curious. I wanted to see if they still had the Scarecrow available. He does not, but he has a lot of other Halloweeny okay. themed uh, miniatures on there, and I think I'm gonna have to break down and get the Christine miniature, which is a uh, creepy toy doll. That's pretty big. So, yeah, and it looks like it's uh, 65 millimeters tall. Awesomeness. All right. And I, I actually invited him to be on the show, but he did, he felt like his English wasn't good enough uh, to, to be on, which is a shame. I think that he's a fantastic artist. So, um, but, you know, that's the world we live in. I'm actually been looking, I've been looking for translators for a few different languages to see if they would come on. Because I know we have a couple of Spanish, potential Spanish artists that are willing to come on, but they're not comfortable. And we also have a couple of German artists that are also want to come on, but aren't 100% comfortable with their with their English skills. Which sucks, because I don't want that to be something that limits. Art is a universal language. And so if there's a way that we can bring in somebody to do some interpretation and then, have, you know what I'm saying? Like, do do that translation for us. That'll be awesome. So, Dan, this week I'm so excited. We actually have a very special guest with us, one that you initially would not think had anything to do with miniature painting. Uh, but this week we have Alistair Stewart from Pseudopod, one of the considered one of the top-ranked horror podcasts in the world. I mean, he's UK-based, and they do stories from all over, from writers all over the world. And we're having a great conversation about. Basically, my when I pitched the interview to him, I said, you know, this may not seem like a good fit, but painters try to paint to tell a story. Writers try to write to paint a picture. And so it's kind of the way that, you know, they're, while they're different mediums, they have kind of the same goals. And we talk about the use of colors and things along those lines. And we just have some general conversation about good old-fashioned horror and Halloween. So... Really quickly before we get into the interview, something weird kind of happened that never happened before when I recorded an interview with somebody overseas. During the interview, heard no technical difficulties, actually thought it was one of the better interviews we've ever captured. But listening back to the recording, there are some areas that his his dialogue fuzzes out on us. So I apologize to the listeners. I apologize to Alistair because I would have asked him to repeat it if I would have heard it happening during the recording. So. And one other thing I want to make sure people know is that the Patreon for Pseudopod is Escape Artists. And so if you go on there, you get access to four uh, podcasts and you help them 
support and pay their or pay all of their contributors to their podcasts. So without further ado, Alistair Stewart from Pseudopod. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You know, and uh, a happy pre-Halloween. We're getting close to kind of uh, the Halloween's just around the corner. <laughs> oh, yeah. Horror Christmas at the end of the week. I can't wait. Yes, absolutely. Horror Christmas. That's a good way of, uh, of phrasing it. Now, um, are you doing anything, uh, given the context of the pandemic, are you able to do anything this year? or? Uh... Yeah, actually, we were able to sort out something really fun. Um, the other podcast that I'm, I'm best known for is my work on the Magnus Archives. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're very good friends with Alexander Jane and Hannah Branken, who run Rusty Quill, which is the part of the organization that produces Magnus Archives. So on, on Halloween itself, on, on the Saturday, we are going to be live streaming a complete playthrough of um, a video game called Little Hope, which comes out on the 30th, which is part of a series called the Dark Pictures Anthology. And these are kind of steerable movies. Um, the one which people are most likely to have heard of is Until Dawn, which was a really good survival horror PS4 game where your choices directly impact the narrative and it's entirely possible to leave the game with no characters dead or with them all dead. <laughs> and the the Dark Pictures Anthology is a slightly smaller games with a little bit more a little bit more focus. Um, and this one, Little Hope, opens with a high school bus breaking down on the outskirts of a small town near where the witch trials once took place and finishes I'm choosing to leave with nothing bad happening, everyone leaving town and happier so we are going to be on we're going to be live streaming that on twitch all the way through through um halloween i think the estimate is it will either take six hours or we'll still be doing it a week later but it's going to be a lot of fun either way nice that, that actually sounds like a lot of fun now what uh what twitch address will you be using for that oh we'll be doing both of them i will um let me pull up the ea podcasts one is twitch.tv forward slash ea podcasts okay and I'll, I've got a bunch of links for you, so I'll, I'll, I'll email you once we're done as well. Awesome. That'd be wonderful. Yeah, that, that way I can put it in the show notes so our listeners can uh, can join in all the fun for sure. Right. So now, Pseudopod is a horror podcast, and I want to talk about that a little bit down the road here. But I'm, I'm curious as to about how you started for the love of horror, you know, like what got you going? Oh, um, my, my story with horror is, I suspect, very sim- similar to a lot of people's in that the vast majority of it was me being exposed to stories I was entirely too young to read. Um, I was given a full cast audio, unabridged audio drama version of Dracula, aged about 10, that, that just really gave me the, the screaming heebie-jeebies in the best possible way. And around the same time, I, I was really interested in kind of in, in, in my in my teens, I was like a teenage conspiracy theorist, and I was really into ufology and all this stuff. And what no one tells you about all of this is that all the kind of ufology books that, that were around at that time were nightmare fuel. Somehow, my parents, who are wonderful, wonderful people, did not see anything wrong with that they genuinely are wonderful with me buying a copy of Intruders by Bud Hopkins, a detailed breakdown of the systemic abduction of multi, multiple multiple generations of the same family, including artist impressions from the kids involved of the aliens that were supposedly abducting them from rooms that looked a lot like mine. I <laughs> didn't sleep much as a kid. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, those those were kind of really my, my two ends. And I think the third one was 
this is obviously not apparent because it's a podcast, but I am 6'2", north of 300 pounds and, and built like a door. And I have been about this size since I was 14. So age certificates on movies were just something that happened to other people as far as I was concerned. So I was able to see stuff like The Terminator and Aliens and, and all that, those kind of classic seminal science fiction and horror movies about four or five years younger than I perhaps should have done. And those really kind of shaped my worldview and shaped the, how I approach story and, and what I really like about it. Yes, I can feel your pain. I'm six five, so I got you. Uh, I understand how how that you know. <laughs> oh, I see. Tall, tall guy solidarity. Thank you for yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, and my my oldest son who's seventeen is six is six three and constantly oh. confused for somebody who is much much older than he is. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he's been that way for quite a while too. So now, how did Pseudopod come about? Uh, let's talk about that and also kind of get into what started you into podcasting as well. Yeah, of course. Um, Pseudopod was actually the first offshoot of Escape Pod, which is a, so the science fiction, short fiction podcast that Escape Artists does. And a couple of years after the company launched Pseudopod, it launched Podcastle, which is which does fantasy. And a couple of years after that, when myself and my partner Marguerite Kenner took it over, we brought in Cast of Wonders, which was a show originally started by a different company, but we had so much crossover in terms of staff. It was things like the audio engineer for Pseudopod was the first host for Cast of Wonders, that kind of thing. That They were basically an, an escape artist show in all but name. The company itself started because um, Sarah Ely, Steve Ely, as, as she was at that point, um, was really bored on their commute and wanted something good to listen to. So they had always been told they had a really good speaking voice, which they had. And uh, they recorded some short science fiction just to listen to on their commute. And around this time, these articles were starting to, starting to come out about these weird new things called podcasts. So Sarah, not unreasonably, thought, oh, I'll put this online and see what happened. What happened was that was one of the first shows to ever do it. So there was this huge rocket of attention attached to it. And suddenly people were going, this is great. Can we give you some money to help you to kind of get you better equipment or help out? And before Sarah really knew it, they had in, not invented, but they'd become one of the first genre fiction podcasts in the Western world. And this was amazing. This was actually how I came in. I was an avid Escape Pod listener. And I remember downloading the first episode of Pseudopod on a 56K modem that I had to plug into the telephone socket in the wall. And um, I loved it. I, I gravitated more and more towards the darker stories on Pseudopod. And after a year on that, uh, Mo Lafferty, who was the co-editor and co-host at that time, stepped away. And in a rare moment of not being dreadfully British, I basically stuck my hand up and went, could I help? And they went, oh, yes, we've been waiting for you. And that was getting on for 10 years ago. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. It's a, it's a, and it's funny to think that people still think of podcasts as kind of a new medium, but it's been around for a lot longer than, you know, like hearing 10 years, you know, for an audio drama, that sounds crazy. You know what I mean? Right. And oh, yeah, it's it, it's it's a running joke amongst all our editorial themes that once every six to eight weeks, there'll be an article about how well, you know, podcasting was really perfected in 2014 by Serial or, you know, whichever stand up comedians pod, podcast has just gone viral. And like I say, we've I mean, Escape Pod's been around since 2005. We weren't the only ones at that point by any means. But we are one of the only ones from that point who are still here. That that is very true too, and that's uh, that's what. And it, I always hear maybe uh, 
in America, we kind of always hear about Welcome to Night Vale as kind yeah. of like that 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 flagship podcast. But no, I, I and it's funny because I've been um, listening to the back catalog as much as I possibly can uh, of Pseudopod. I actually listen to Pseudopod while I paint a lot of times. And uh, oh, nice. Absolutely. It's one, uh, wonderful, uh, especially like right now. I, I listen to, uh, I kind of been saving the Flash on the Borderlands series. And so I, like last night I painted for about two hours and I just kind of plowed through some of them because I, I, I really? love Flash fiction. Um, Me too. I can't. Yeah. And it's one of my, my favorite areas. I was going to ask you, is there a type of uh, format in fiction that you're particularly drawn to? Yes. Um, I have very, this is one of the many reasons why I'm not, I, I have no editorial res responsibilities at all. I love my job. I literally just show up and go, oh, is this this week? Great. So let's talk about this. Um, I am an absolute sucker for epistological fictions, fiction told through letters or notes. Um, and so I love found footage movies for the same reason. And I love sea monster stories. Oh, nice. And, and, and every time I say this, I can, I can say, somewhere out there an author going a sea monster story told epistologically the weakness is revealed at last you know so it, it's clearly on the way it's just not quite here yet oh that's perfect yeah and it's it's one of the things that's very interesting about um there's so many different facets to horror fiction that i don't, I don't think people understand that um and, and it's funny because i always have this my wife who's an english teacher um her and i kind of always argue about it i i think horror fiction is one of the hardest to write because it's mm -hmm. a different type of suspension of disbelief like you have to make somebody believe that it could happen to them whereas sci-fi you kind of get a default like okay i know i'm going to be in this world far far away or something along those lines you know what i mean and so uh it's just really interesting to hear that you know, there's so many sub genres of horror and in different formats and different kind of timelines, et cetera. So thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Um, now, let me ask this question for you. For you. Um, do you kind of have a favorite short story out there? Like when you said that, of course, the first thing that anybody probably came to mind was, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is probably <laughs> one of your favorites, right? Um, but do you have anything, like, do you have a short story that, when I when I say, what's your favorite short story, what was the first one that popped into your head? Uh, I have a couple. Um, in terms of kind of all-time favorites, there is, and I love this because it's, it's basically a short story, a dad joke disguised as a short story. There's a very old Frederick White science fiction story, um, which he sold at the time as the shortest science fiction story ever written, which reads simply, the last man on earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock at the door. And I've always loved that for its efficiency. Actually massively expanded it too, years after publishing it and explained who was there and what, what caused it. And that version is, is fun in very different ways. In terms of favorite short stories, I am going to be a little bit self-centered and choose a couple that I've narrated for Pseudopod. I am incredibly fond of Grady Hendrix's White Street Society series. And the, the crux of those is basically Grady is an incredibly switched on perceptive critic and, and kind of fictional analyst, as well as an author. And these are simultaneously parodies and absolutely brutal takedowns of the early 1910s and 1920s. Gentlemen adventurers shoot natives in the face for the good of the empire. We have outtakes from one of these of me 
unable to get through the first half page because I am laughing so hard. Genuinely wonderful. That my favorite opens with the the hapless kind of Watson analog being ordered to come as quickly as possible to an orphanage nearby, where uh, the the Sherlock Holmes analog, who he's not spoken to for a couple of years, has just killed Santa Claus, and that is by some distance the most sensible thing that happens in those stories, and they are hilarious and horrifying by turn. And there is there's a piece, and I'm actually going to look up the author for this while I'm on with you really quick because I want to credit them. Um, I really love monologues as a form, and, I, and also as something which every now and again I get to do. Uh, and there is a, a piece which we ran, my God, 12 years ago, uh, October 10th, 2008, called Radio Demonology by John Madai, which is this tiny little, I think it is actually a flash piece, monologue from the point of view of a, a radiologist who figures out that he can use his equipment to see people's souls. And it escalates so beautifully and finishes so well. And that story has stayed with me for 12 years. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah no, that, that's fantastic. And that's, uh, you know, kind of, um, do you find yourself... Um, I guess best, let me ask it this way. Do you kind of have like a guilty pleasure author or genre that you go to? Like I, I am, I, while I, I would say 90% of what I read is horror fiction, I do kind of like the noir detective stories uh, from mm -hmm. the past. And uh, like my, my favorite short story is probably A Careful Man Dies by Ray Bradbury, which is kind of sad. Oh, and good kinda, choice. You know, and, and so... Um, not horror fiction, but certainly something. Is there something that kind of draws you as well besides necessarily horror? Yeah. Um, for most of my most of my life, I convinced myself I was a science fiction guy. And uh, the, really just in the last five or six years, I realized that, you know, it's a, I, I like spaceships, but I like spaceships with awful things on them slightly more. But I'm, science fiction has a tremendous draw for me, and particularly science fiction, which is interested in the impact of its own attempts to better itself, specifically through the lens of crewed spaceflight. Uh, astronauts hit me where I live. That the whole idea of the NASA myth, the whole idea of of the right stuff, all of that. The right stuff was one of the first movies I saw, um, and and it's all really stayed with me. And and a lot of the stuff I write, that certainly at the moment is in that sphere. And there are two things that two really good examples of it, which again I can pull up for you. Um, Skateboard five hundred springs to mind. Uh, we uh, yeah, here we go. Escape Pod 500 was a story called The Man Who Lost the Sea by Theodore Sturgeon. And I'm aware a lot of the stuff I'm pulling up here is is kind of a little bit from greatest hits. And I know from the questions you've sent me, we'll, we will be talking about more current stuff as well. But this one is very special. I mean, it's an incredible story and it's an incredible narrator. Uh, we got Anson Mount in to do this, um, who some of your listeners may know as Captain Pike from the last season of Star Trek Discovery. Nice. And Anson has has done quite a bit of stuff for us. He, he's he's a fan of the shows, and he never fails to turn in astounding work. But this, which is about that kind of moment where you push past the outer, outer edge of human endeavor and the price you pay for it, and those moments where it's worth it, is, to my mind, the best thing he's done for us so far. And again, I'll drop the in the show notes. The other one... Um, 
there was a show that that ran for a season on Hulu last year called The First, which didn't do terribly well. And it was a real shame because for me, it was very much the kind of science fiction I respond to. It's um, basically a story about what happens when the first crewed space flight to Mars explodes and everyone dies. And that happens in the first five minutes of the first episode of an eight episode season. And the rest of it is how do you come back from that? How do you get to a point where you can convince anyone from the secondary crew to the people financing the mission that that was a mistake and it won't happen again? And it is an extraordinary piece of TV. Bits of it don't quite land. There is a story involving uh, one of the main character's spouses who suffers from depression, which is not which doesn't handle the condition in a way which I feel is or useful. But <clears throat> the stuff that does work is extraordinary. It, it is one of the most extraordinarily powerful pieces of science fiction I've ever seen. And if you watch it for nothing else, watch it for the soundtrack by Colin Stetson because it is just these titanic walls of orchestrated noise with tremendous emotion behind them. And I absolutely loved it. I started rewatching last night and it was every bit which is a really long long winded way of saying I really like stories with spaceships in them <laughs> that's okay that you know it's good to hear kind of the background beside it and it's interesting that your description of the first and uh, kind of mirrors kind of what I feel about Lovecraft Country you know it kind of had that it's got a great soundtrack it's got a great kind of main plot area and questions and it feels almost like at times where they've switched over they've made uh, basically a black um national treasure and indiana jones and like a horror as well kind of the horror is almost the secondary um mm -hmm. of it but there are just points where it just you're like um yeah I, I don't that didn't land at all you know <laughs> like you know so it's interesting it's interesting have you have you watched that lovecraft country yet we have all of it banked up, and I think we're going to be watching that this coming weekend. I'm really looking forward to it. But you should. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Go ahead. Everything you've said tallies exactly with a friend of mine, um, Stuart Hotston, who's an excellent author in his own right, who's been doing uh, breakdowns of each episode for a site that we both write for. And he's, he said very similar things to you in that it is frequently brilliant, and when it isn't, it's very hard not to look away from that. Right. Absolutely. Um so, you know, I'm also curious because uh, one of the big differences I noticed back um, ages ago, I used to be a member of a group called the Horror Writers Association. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we always talked about were the differences between the UK market and the US market for horror fiction. And kind of my example of the difference is Richard Lehman um, seemed to be pretty popular in U the United Kingdom, but here in the US, he didn't really gain any traction until after he signed kind of a, a big deal with Leisure Books and one of those monthly book club type things. And so is that still kind of the case today that UK is still kind of the hub of horror, um, at least in comparison to the US? Yes and no. Um, the UK has a very long proud tradition of of horror fiction i mean you know the i've i've been to the beach the the, the demeter runs aground on in dracula you know and almost ran a ran a one-shot call of cthulhu campaign in one of the beach huts you could run there really should get back around to that um, 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 
of horror anthology editors who are UK based, who have decades in the industry. Um, for me, the more vibrant elements of the industry are far more dispersed. And this actually speaks to a larger issue that publishing as a whole is starting to engage with, where the US and the UK are increasingly becoming points on rather than two points on a compass. You know, there, there's a lot more going on outside those fields that's starting to become noticed. And that's really helpful and really hopeful too, because obviously the more diverse the voices are we're listening to, the more interesting the stories we get from them. Um, the UK yeah. still has an awful lot and there's an awful lot of energy and enthusiasm behind the field. But um, the big names at the moment are all US-based with, with a couple of exceptions. It's based over here, it's been really good work. <laughs> Uh, the publishing lineup for Black Shark books. And again, I'll, I'll make sure I, I throw you the links for these. Particularly people like Power and people like um, Penny Jones are doing really, really good work. The area where the UK is absolutely still a hub is in community. Um, there's a friend of mine, a guy called Jim McLeod, who runs Ginger Nights of Horror, which is oh, how to describe GNOH. Uh, the best way to describe it is a sustained explosion of horror enthusiasm and information. Jim is a dynamo. He does not sleep. I know for a fact he doesn't sleep the way normal people do because he works night shifts. Um, <laughs> and GNOH is this constantly updating fountain of reviews and essays and breakdowns, and it looks at everything. And it's irreverent and enthusiastic and energetic and knows its stuff inside out and backwards. So if you're looking for the future of UK horror, I would argue it's probably the community side of things at the moment, rather more than in the writing, and that the writing is starting to emerge from that. Oh, nice. I know, but there's still, like, you know, you also have a lot of the classic, you know, horror writers, you know, Ramsey Campbell, Tanith Lee, mm -hmm. um, you know, th those are those are some of my, like, I have, uh, for a long period of time, I used to go to used bookstores and collect any horror anthology I could find. <laughs> and so, like, I have these stacks and stacks of, like, short stories. And so whenever whenever I have a quite, I, I want to read something, I can easily grab, you know, uh, Eustace by Kenneth Lee or, you know, something by, uh, God, now that I can't think of the whole name of the short story, something church. There's a church short story by Ramsey Campbell, which I'm sure he's got more than one. Um, Ramsey's you know, still active as well. He still publishes a couple of times a year. It's it's crazy. <laughs> it's so there's so there's so much, and it's it's interesting, and I think that's um, one of the things I I I, lo I love about uh, the genre is that the, you do kind of get um, these powerful icons, and you know, and it's a shame that 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 Tanith passed away. I loved her work, both you know the fantasy side and the the horror fiction mm -hmm. side, and there's these wonderful names, and so that's one. It, it's it, it, I don't know. I think it's the best genre out there i still like other things too but you know horror fiction to me really is the one that that keeps going going on um now so this might be so this I, I know originally when i uh, sent the interview request it's kind of a weird one we paint uh, we're focused on painting miniatures and and such and i was wondering if you um being british by chance do you have you heard of warhammer <laughs> oh god yes Okay, I, um, I used to live in Nottingham, which is Warhammer Town. Yes. Um, seriously, my, my train out to the cleaning job I had while we were there, which was was notable for two things. The first I'd go out there and I'd always have this incredibly jazz-voiced guard 
Seriously, this train was like a carriage long. Like the driver was at one end and I sat at the other and normally four other people on there. And hand on a stack of holy books, this girl would go, good evening, everybody. Our next stop is Long Eaton. Nice. Mm-hmm. Made me laugh every time. Uh, and the train tracks go right past the Games Workshop head office with the very large Space Marine directly outside it. Right. <laughs> That's it. Excellent. You know, it's it's really funny because we were talking about... Uh, um, I was talking to one an artist who lives in the UK, and I'm like, is it is it like a rite of passage? Do you have to like at some point does a a teenager in the UK have to play Warhammer at some point? You know, <laughs> you know. I, it kind of is, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> nice, and I know. Um, your, your friends at uh, the Magnus Archives, Rusty, running Rusty Quill, they do a bunch of stuff with role-playing games and Dungeons yes. and Dragons and such. And so it's 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 always interesting to me to see the kind of crossovers and such. But uh, one of the reasons I do is because um, I love the way Pseudopod selects stories, and a lot of times, many of them have. Uh, wonderful uses of color and you know like when I explained mm-hmm. the, doing the interview was uh, painters try to create a picture to tell a story and writers um, try to paint a picture with their words um, yeah. and so I'm wondering and kind of first in the context of voice acting like is there something that's a trigger like do you like when you see uh, use of a color does that maybe change the way you intone something or kind of have the you know what I'm saying like does that guy yeah, like yeah, this, yeah, like, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really interesting one because, and this is actually beautifully timed because we we just started taking some very informal instruction from a friend of ours who is a professional voice actor and mixed martial artist and a radio producer. And because he lives in New Zealand, we can't really do too much with the MMA side of things at the moment. But the voice acting, that's going really well online. Um, and the point that he made was re- was really interesting, which was basically very similar to you, in that when you inhabit a character, everything changes. Your posture shifts, your the tone or the level of your voice shifts. And the idea of using kind of color and sensation and tactility as a means of that is actually something that I've been kind of reviewing voice work that I really like um, and seeing whether it does that. And by and large, yeah, it does. The interesting thing with audio trauma is... It is, how can I put this? My dad once described it as the brilliant thing is the budget is infinite, because it is. You can do all sorts with audio because you're, you're filling in, people's imaginations are kind of filling in for you. <clears throat> but at the same time, you also have a tremendous burden as a narrator or a voice actor in that you have to do everything. And one of the things that I've learned this year, because I've done my first real kind of long-form serial narration this year is to do something very to that fixate on particular things in the text um the wednesday night stream we do on twitch we, we do a serial for it and, and at the moment it's an excellent book by ursula vernon under the name t kingfisher called a wizard's guide to defensive baking in which a 14-year-old wizard and her familiar, who is a carnivorous sourdough starter called Bob, must defend their city from invaders. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. But there's this running gag through it where the, the villain is called Oberon. And um, I was instinctively putting a, putting like a little bit of Star Wars on his name every time I said it. So like, And then Oberon entered. And I, I actually, I did it just now. I, I bunched my eyebrows. 
as they say that so for a week and it, it was Oberon was in the story quite a lot I didn't and the feedback we got from the, the chat on Twitch was all where are the eyebrows we need the eyebrows <laughs> and now someone will actually keep a running total of how many times the Oberon eyebrows manifest for that exact reason so colour and shade and I'd say with, with prose shade is often something which maps across to rhythm are very, very important to audiobook narration. And when I say rhythm and audio narration in general, pardon me, I mean length of dialogue, length of sentence, phrasing, that kind of thing. Um, a Wizard's Guide is very light on its feet. It's very informal. The dialogue's got real kind of snap to it. Uh, conversely, something like, um, let's say, Lurker at the Threshold, which I'm going to check now to make sure is by August Dillith before I say Lurker at the Threshold. But yes, well done. Good job, me. <laughs> <coughs> Lurker at the, uh, the <coughs> pardon me. Lurker at the Threshold has a one and a half page on running sentence as it's literally as the first thing you see. And to narrate that is a little bit like narrating James Joyce's The Dubliners, just with more tentacles. You know, it's really difficult. But even there, you find light and shade. You find stuff to focus on, whether it's names or punctuation or something which enables you to build a structure to get to the end of the page, or in the case of Durlough, to that merciful first set, first full stop. So, yeah, it definitely plays a role. That's all. Uh, that, that's wonderful. And I love that. What was the name of that short? The, the story they're doing on Twitch again. Can you repeat that? Just because yes. my brain, it, my brain is focused on basically combat baking. But go ahead. <laughs> the Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking by T. Kingfisher, and yes. I'll, I'll send you links for all of this. And it is, it's lovely. It, it's a. I, I think it counts as YA. It's a really smart, really kind story, which is both about this 14-year-old girl realizing who she is and what she can do and that she's allowed to do it, and also is fundamentally a, an epic battle to defend a city where the primary offensive weapon of the defenders is bread. <laughs> it's really good and we're almost finished with it. So, That's, uh, yeah, Also, it's fantastic because everything, you know, every time you're on Facebook, somebody, and I'm guilty of this too, Somebody's out there making bread, you know, like because yeah. of the pandemic, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah this it, 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 this is this is definitely the time for this book. Fantastic. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I mean, it's one of those things that's. Uh, um, my wife laughs at me because uh, I have read uh, the entire catalog, Rick Riordan catalog, to all three of my children, and <laughs> I will probably read it again on my own at some point, just because I, I I don't know just uh there's my guilty pleasure right there. I can I can read that that stuff on God, Norse God, you know, all the different types of gods, et cetera, and just love it. Of course, uh, best stuff. Um, so now, when writing, like when when you're writing something, um, I know, like like I, I probably my favorite book by Stephen King is his book called On Writing. Um, <laughs> more, which is funny that you know his write a book about writing, you know, is one of my favorites. Um. But uh, one of the things that he tries to do is always avoid um, adverbs, you know, the, the L-Y, et cetera. Is there something when you write that you kind of focus on not doing? Yeah, I have a list of words I'm not allowed to use, and um, I often use them anyway. Uh, the, the writing I do most commonly at the moment is pseudopod end caps and my, my newsletter, the full lid. 
And the full lid is, is pop culture review stuff. And I always come at it from a place of enthusiasm because I believe it's there is more than enough kind of, well, this was rubbish and here's why stuff in pop culture discussion. Whereas someone like me, whose job is to go in and go, this was great. You, you, you missed it. You should check it out and potentially do. I, I have a couple of sentences, which I'm overly fond of. And I can always tell if it's been a long week because I'm normally putting it together Thursday night and those sentences will show up. Uh, <laughs> if, if, I, if I ever find myself writing the phrase, but the truly impressive thing is I am so well-trained at this point that my partner who edits it doesn't even have to be in the room. I can hear her, hear her in my head going, no, back. Nice. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, and I, I, I feel your pain because I'm working on, you know, my skills as an interviewer, I feel like are a work in progress. And so that I constantly, I'm like, okay, I need to get rid of the word awesome out of my thing, you know, like <laughs> out of my vocabulary, because that's my yeah, typical transition, you know, so I, I feel your pain with that for sure. <laughs> you are really good, by the way. And I will send you a link to the book, which I have stolen pretty much how all the stuff I interview from. Uh, all the interview t tips I use from by a guy called Jason Arnop. Uh, Jason is a, is a very good UK-based um, horror writer, and um, he's also a former heavy metal journalist. So he's he, he's actually written a book which is literally here is how you interview people, and it yeah, is that's awesome, <laughs> unbelievably <laughs> useful. Thank you so much. I appreciate your kind words and that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'd say Dan and I, our motto for the podcast is better, braver, happier, you know, trying to get people to be better, braver and happier painters. And so we constantly look at ourselves as work in progresses, you know, and trying to, you know, everything is a, is a means to get better. Now, do you, are you still into role playing games at all? Or did you play role playing games? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I I had a uh, basically I had an unpaid job at university, which was a five night a week conspiracy RPG. And after I graduated, I had a couple of other games which almost got that big. Uh, there was a Star Wars West End games thing that ran for about two three years. Uh, there was a Tribe Eight game that didn't quite come into land. Had some interesting stuff. Uh, there was a Battlestar Galactica campaign that had 150 active NPCs. Basically, because I had got to the point where I was fairly certain that that you know my 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 RPG campaigns had accidentally been built on an ancient native burial ground. They just couldn't be stopped. Um, <laughs> the thing was a sandbox, so basically it was an it was an alternative fleet that had fled slightly earlier than the Galacticas, and had been designed. So it was a far more of a coherent ecosystem as opposed to well, here's where all the food is. There are like three or four of everything. And the characters could literally go to any ship and find an adventure. Oh, that's fantastic. And that was, it was really good fun for a long time. Um, I've actually done some professional RPG writing too. Uh, I did the sixth Doctor Sourcebook for the Doctor Who RPG, and I co-wrote the tenth Doctor Sourcebook for them. Did a bunch of adventures for them too. And most recently, and this is the thing that I've really enjoyed, uh, Jason Peter, who is a Canadian RPG creator and just a fiercely creative and, and smart and cool dude, uh, and I co-created a game called After the War. And After the War is basically a game of mimetic horror and community building. Uh, the, the genesis of it was we, we were chatting one day and basically I went, what, if, what happened the day after Starfleet's worst day? So you have the setup, which is the usual kind of benevolent sentient alien races. Everyone comes together to explore the galaxy. 
And then one of the ships on the outer edge of settled space encounters a carrier wave. This carrier wave is music and it's sentient and it has one goal and that is for everyone to sing it. And in the space of just over two weeks, it sweeps across settled space, creates this nightmarish chorister fleet of these hundreds of thousands of ships, all intoning endlessly this sentient music. Planets are evacuated, planets fall. And uh, the last ditch battle is fought over a world which is, everyone has held uh, once or twice called Polvo, which is Spanish for dirt. And the, the song is stopped there. And the game is about what happens next, because so many the galaxy is functionally in ruins. So, and so many people have been abandoned above Polvo that they've just basically landed and turned their ships into townships. So you have this game about people trying to rebuild communities and move past past trauma at the same time as if, if you want to, there is the option that the song is far less dead than people thought it was. And there's all sorts of really nasty conspiracy stuff about how exactly it was stopped in the first place. And that was a labor of love. We wrote that across about two or three years, came out late last year, and we are both ridiculously proud of it. And I actually have some fiction penciled in in that universe, which I should get to hopefully early next year. <laughs> well, congratulations. That, that is an that, that accomplishment of being able to write an RPG, kind of the whole thing. That's very impressive. Thank you. Uh, and I do have to say uh, thank you to you as well, because... Um, I haven't, you know, I, I always in that, I ne you never have one hobby, right? And so um, actually kind of having this interview on the docket, uh, listening to tons and tons of pseudopod, I actually um, grabbed one of my story note cards and knocked out a short story the other night that I, that I was pretty excited for. So th thank you for helping with kind of inspiration. I appreciate it. Oh, dude, that's amazing. Well done. Thank you. Yep, and it's now with my English teacher wife to edit, which means oh. it'll come, it's going to get brutalized. <laughs> yeah, if you can get it past an English teacher, you can get it past anybody. That's really good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's hard though sometimes when you have a living grammar checker. <laughs> my my partner is a lawyer, and as a result, uh, every now and again, as happened earlier today, in fact, things will happen when she goes, here you go, here's your new invoice template, because I love you, but the last one was rubbish. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God. I really, I should have recorded her reaction to the very first attempt at our, pod, at our podcast. <laughs> like, she like like she didn't last two minutes into it before she was just completely appalled by what we were trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing, but it's good to have those people people around absolutely um, to, to keep you in straight and narrow. So, um, are there any? Uh, I guess we I guess we kind of covered it a little bit. Uh, up and coming kind of authors uh, that that you think our listeners would, should absolutely go out and read. Oh God, yeah. Absolutely. Um, in terms of kind of contemporary thrillers, there's a very good friend of mine, a guy called uh, Andrew Reed, who has one book out at the moment called The Hunter, which is unbelievably great uh, and is about a female bounty hunter uh, who is a former professional mixed martial artist who um, runs into essentially a transhumanist conspiracy. It's cyberpunk with a really small C and it's a really, really good book. Um, in terms of fantasy, there is another good friend of mine, a lady called Jen Williams, who has just finished her second three-book 
uh, tri- three book trilogy, as opposed to a five book trilogy. Alistair. <laughs> uh, her second fantasy trilogy, which um, is is glorious, where the main characters are an immortal barbarian who might also be a vampire, uh, a feral witch with a giant bat, and Tony Stark if he was a middle aged gay black lady. And they are so much fun. These are the only books I've ever read where at one point one character solves a problem by going, actually, hang on, I'm disgustingly rich. I'm just going to buy that. <laughs> it, it's, it's really, really good. Um, C.L. Clark's debut, the, the Unbroken, is out next year, and that is one of those books that people are not going to see coming. Charade has done uh, amazing work for us at Podcastle, and they are... A remarkable voice in the field. Uh, Matt Wallace as well. Anything with Matt Wallace on it is going to be worth people's time. Um, Savage Legion, his epic fantasy debut, came out earlier this year and is by some distance. His work is fantastic. Um, in terms of science fiction, The Architects of Memory by Karen, by Karen Osborne is a debut and a fantastically good one, which has all that kind of crunchy stuff we were talking about earlier that I really love. There's spacesuits and secret orbital weapons and conspiracies and all kinds of good stuff. Anything by Cameron Hurley. Literally anything. You can start anywhere. Hurley is just that good. Although if I had to, I would probably recommend The Light Brigade first off. Um... Last one for science fiction. This is an interesting one, actually, because I was on uh, the jury for the Clark Award this year, and this won. Uh, the Old Drift by Namwal Serpel is, for about 300 pages, the least science fictional novel you'll read. And then very slowly you realize what's going on with it, as it becomes a history of Africa as a continent and particular countries and human evolution. And it's just it's very complex and chewy and cool. Um, and finally, there are two or three YA books which people should keep an eye out for. The Strange World's Travel Agency by L.D. Lipinski is a brilliantly realized kind of alternate dimension action adventure. The Sal and Gabby books by Gabriel Hernandez are hilarious. Sal and Gabby are both geniuses. They're both from families of geniuses. This doesn't mean they that they solve problems. It just means the problems which they cause are much more fun than most people's. Um, if I tell you the second book in the series has an artificially intelligent toilet that plays a vitally important role, that should sell you. It's, it's middle grade, but it's also very funny and very smart. And finally, Fight Like a Girl by Sheena Kamal, which is an exploration of the collision between uh, cultures, especially as an adolescent growing up in a country which is not the one you were, that your family originally come, came from, filtered in turn through the very complex and chewy and interesting cultural appropriation of uh, studying a martial art in a, in a foreign country. And how, in this case, it's Thai boxing is used as a means of processing anger, and in some cases of processing it in very much the wrong way. Any of those is going to be great, and I have links to all of them for you. Oh, that's wonderful. That, absolutely. Especially, you know, uh, my 11-year-old will probably love to read something with a, a AI toilet in it. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if you have an 11-year-old, the Sal and Gabby books are absolutely coming to your house, and, and that's a very good thing. Cool. That's excellent. Excellent. And uh, so I, I, I'm going to ask a, a, this kind of question. It's not in there, but I, I'm curious um, uh, of a couple authors that are some of my favorite. I'm wondering if you had heard of them. Have you ever heard of uh, Gary Bronbeck? Uh, yes, vaguely. I'm going to look up now. Gary Brownback. 
Um, kind of his seminal work was the the I called it uh, the Indifference of Heaven. That book kind of wrecked me. Um, but uh, he's also got a, a a Creek County kind of theme that going on. But uh, no, he's a fantastic author. Um, I didn't know if he had a chance to read any. He's got a short story called Hasseltama, which is just like religious lore through the yin yang. It was published originally. Oh, I think that by sounds Cemetery great. Cemetery dance. Um, yeah, you know, R- Richard Chismar's magazine. Um, and then the other one, have you heard of Bentley Little? No, not at all. <laughs> Bentley Little is a fun one because, um, basically, whatever Bentley is pissed off at, that's what the book is about. And so, if he's <laughs> pissed off at his homeowners association, there's a story, there's a book called The Association, or he's disgusted by, you know, the big box stores in Walmart. So there's one called The Store. Um, and so <laughs> they're fantastic. But probably my, my favorite work of his is, uh, uh, which I, I imagine this is something that you would totally appreciate. It's called, it's a short story called The Washingtonians. And it basically is kind of an alternative history. Um, it tells an alternative history in the present of what happened at Valley Forge. And it replays in modern times uh, the you know blue coats versus red coats, um, oh. and, and this whole story about uh, the true nature of George Washington. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And so, but he's also you know he's interesting because he's one of those authors that has a, a ton of books out, but he's a recluse, and so mm. he doesn't do interviews, he doesn't do any form of promotions whatsoever. He just writes his books and moves on and so but uh, those are two that that i i i, I just I, I adore their work and there's a um now i'm blanking on it but he has a uh, gary brownback has an audio uh book out for basically it is a guy sitting in a radio booth watching the world end and oh, so he's yeah I'm yeah, sold. yeah yeah so yeah basically it's him watching the whole He's in this glass, you know, glass enclosed area, and it's just, it's, yeah, fantastic work. So, um, for sure, yeah, I hope, I hope if you ever get a chance to read them, that yeah, I hope you'll enjoy them. I will. They, they sound great. You know, and it's one, and it's funny because those, um, I found out about Gary Brownback through the Horror Writers Association, but Bentley Little was one of the ones that when I, I. Every so often would subscribe to those monthly book clubs. You get like, oh, monthly horror book club by Leisure Books or something. And so mm-hmm. between I, I I make fun of them, but that's how I learned about like Ray Garten and uh, Bentley Little or Richard Lehman, who is one of my favorite all time splatterpunk kind of horror writers. Um, there's, you know. there's nothing wrong with those clubs for that exact reason. Anything which exposes you to kind of new and interesting voices is absolutely worth your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, one of the last things I was going to ask you. So we are, like I said before, is our motto of our podcast is better, braver and happier. And so I know a lot of us out there that like to write as well as paint. So is there are there any words of advice uh, along those lines that you could give for writing to our listeners? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm, I'm in an unusual position there because for the last few years, I've been extremely prolific in, in the nonfiction spaces and not remotely prolific in fiction spaces. And that I've decided has to change. Um, I completed a draft of a, a novel for using the using NaNoWriMo um, about 18 months ago, and I really liked it. And then I went back and read it again and realized I really liked about 60% of it and shifted it around and 
I'm now at the point where after the next revision, there's, there are a couple of agents who would like to see it. And the thing which I, I'm really focusing on with the, the difference between the non-fiction space, which I'm very used to working in, and the fiction space, which I'm not, is the difference in trajectory. With non-fiction, especially with freelance journalism or even with blog posts, a lot of the time it's basically a straight line going up at about 45 degrees. You write and then you're done. And then it's finished and you move on to the next thing. And that's great if you're only working in those fields. If you're working with fiction or if you're working with long form fiction in particular, you need to make your peace with the fact that it's going to take longer. And by you, I mean me, because I'm still struggling with this, where you'll finish something and you'll think it's great and it will plateau for a couple of months and then you'll make more changes and think it's great and it will plateau for a couple of months and and so on and so forth and after a while it's very easy to think that you're not getting anywhere and nothing's ever going to happen you are and it will so if you want kind of the most distilled version of that in terms of writing advice i, th I think it really comes down to this persist keep going finish something and once you have be prepared with the fact you may have for the fact you may have to finish it again but it will be worthwhile that's awesome. Yeah, that 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 speaks to painters as well because uh, we we have a say we have two sayings: finished, not perfect, and also uh, we don't finish projects; we abandon them. Um, <laughs> well, I'm using so, that one <laughs> for sure. Um, one of the things I wanted to point out is that it is in that it is the first kind of podcast that's trying to not only pay authors but pay their associate editors as well and so can you talk just a little bit about that and the importance of that for keeping kind of the 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 genre going oh yeah of course i mean it's ultimately it's really very simple we believe everyone who works in the field should be paid for their time and what we've been working towards for the last couple of years is that exact thing um we pay pro rates for our authors we pay our narrators we pay our production staff the only people that we don't pay at the moment are our slush readers who now have a slightly less pejorative sounding name they're, they're now called associate editors and slush readers are the unsung heroes of genre fiction these are the people who will have who will be your first point of contact as an author with the magazine and as the magazine they'll be your first point of contact with everyone coming in and they deal with everything they deal with the stories which are great and they pass up the line they deal with the stories which are good and they pass up the line they deal with the stories which they don't really think will work and we work really hard on making sure that if we haven't taken a story forward we'll explain to the author in a manner which isn't patronizing or cruel because no one likes that and it's no one should have should have to deal with that but far more in the kind of this was here's what worked for us here's what didn't we have that's useful for you and also they'll deal with the absolute dross i mean we i can pull a horror story for you from my own experience we uh once received a seventeen thousand word um cannibal incest period piece novella i know because i was slush wrangling at the time i i, I was Whoa. the one who ended up reading it and our hard word count limit is six thousand words and just as a good rule of thumb, if you're submitting to some to uh, some work to a magazine, you read the submission guidelines and you're over by a factor of 10, don't go, ah, they'll take it anyway, I'm just that good, because they won't. <laughs> no. No. I remember, you know, I used to re buy the guide, there used to be a guide to publishing that comes out and it would go through 
of all the different markets and stuff like that. And then, yeah. and like in the first, like the first sentence was like, read the submission guidelines. If you don't follow them, you're going to get rejected no matter how good you are, you know? Yeah. Always. <laughs> and, so, and it's, um, so now the Patreon page, which we'll put in a link for absolutely in the show notes, but I want to stress it here. And it's the Patreon goes to support, uh, your efforts to pay the, the former slush wranglers and all the people that are associated with the podcast. And that is, is that under escape pod or under pseudopod? Uh, that's, that's under everybody. The, the, the Patreon covers all four shows. Okay. So is it, it is then the Patreon is called escape pod then? Yeah. Let me get you the link for it. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> I appreciate it. But Alistair, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you're like the Halloween. I picked this time period to have an interview with you. I'm sure is the the t- deadline capital of the world for uh, for horror fiction, right? <laughs> uh, it, we we do have a big week planned, but honestly, this the, the, this is a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It has been it has been absolutely an honor, sir. And uh, I, I got to tell you. Um, you you have an a, amazing voice that I can just listen to over and over again, and I, I I enjoyed you on the the Magnus archives, and I, I of course I'm always excited when I hear uh, you introducing the story on Pseudopod as well. Oh, thank you so much. I re- re- really appreciate that. So Dan and I would like to thank Alistair Stewart from Pseudopod for joining us. You could find more uh, out about Pseudopod by downloading them wherever you get your podcasts. Please hop on and give them a good review. You can also support them on Patreon. Just look up Pseudopod. Also, AlistairStewart.com is where he has a lot of the different voice works. Like we talked about, he's done stuff with the Magnus Archives, etc. He is a fantastic actor, a wonderful writer, and thank you so much, Alistair, for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Listening to Paint Dry or on Twitter at Dry Painting. We also have a YouTube channel, which is appropriately titled Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan. Please like, subscribe, or follow wherever you get your podcast, which now includes Amazon. If you would like to leave us some good review, that would really give us a lot of help. So channel all those fears to become a better, braver, happier painter. Until next time. See ya. Listening to Paint Dry with Mike and Dan is a production of LTPDWMD. All rights reserved. No portion of this recording may be used without the express written consent of the host. The music is Death by a Thousand Questions by Springtide. Download from the free music archive on a non-commercial attribution share alike basis. All views and opinions expressed in the show are solely the views and opinions of the person who said them. All celebrity voices, if any, were impersonated and done so poorly.